back to one more thing. We're going to have an AP Euro edition today. It's probably the only AP Euro I'm going to put on this particular podcast channel, but I figured that it'd be easier than creating a whole separate podcast just for AP Euro and only having one edition. So maybe that's uh, in the future. But for now, if you're a normal One More Thing subscriber and listener, then here's uh, three hours of AP Euro review. And if you're someone who's here just for this, then here you go. So cause and effect of the most important conflicts throughout European history probably starts with the wars of religion. Uh, Obviously, the most important causes of the wars of religion are Luther, who's a bit of a problem um, and a bit of a disturber. And if you're Charles V, probably the bane of your existence. Um, And then when you have the Council of Trent, which tries to kind of reestablish the Catholic Church as legitimate because they feel offended by all of these people leaving them. You have a significant reaction in the course of like the Jesuits who are trying to re-Catholicize Europe, re-educate Europe, create um, solutions to this like brain drain that they had due to plague and other issues and then many people leaving the church itself um and they start uh, revising some of the issues that they had now in a response to that the protestants start doubling down on things in order to accumulate followers so they start promoting um science as being incredibly important because it threatens the power of the catholic church and so many protestants like calvin and luther will actually see science as a significant positive because it's it's destroying or deteriorating some of the monolithic power that the Catholic Church, ha- Church had beforehand. Um, once you get to the uh, Peace of Augsburg in 1555, it will recognize Lutheranism as a legitimate religion in the Germanic states, in the Holy Roman Empire, but what it does is it creates kind of this duality that Europe had never experienced before. And so it also will have a a bit of an impact on other Protestant groups, which are emboldened by Luther. So guys like Calvin, who uh, does most of his stuff in Geneva, which is a very small community that he he kind of uh, creates almost a theocratic society, meaning a society built on religion. Um, you know, in his Geneva, you weren't allowed to wear bright colors. It basically is is the version of like an Amish society uh, back in that day. And one of the things that come from that is called the Protestant work ethic, um, which is a, going to be important going forward. I've seen multiple, multiple choice questions on multiple different tests regarding the Protestant work ethic. Um, yesterday, one of the practice books had in there um, all of the following things happened except And then it was like the Catholic work ethic. That's not a thing. Uh, The Catholic work ethic wasn't ever, no one ever called it that. The reason that the Protestant work ethic is important, and this is all going somewhere, sorry for like redirecting a bit, but it's really important in the North because in the North, um, places like the Netherlands, they see the Protestant work ethic as the reason that they have wealth. Um, they believe that God is blessing them for their work ethic, for their for them working hard and, and that being pleasing in, in the sight of God. Um, and that's a very Calvinist thing. Um, that's why the Puritans, who are kind of an offshoot of Calvinism, 
they also are thinking kind of the same thing in England um, when they eventually take over England. It's God is blessing me. This is evident in my uh, economic situation. And eventually they'll start fighting for their own rights. Now, if you go back to the other religious conflict um, in France, this duality between Calvinism and Catholicism is going to start manifesting itself in conflict, specifically once the Calvinists start to get into their iconoclastic stage. Um, Iconoclastism is where you see the icon that people are uh, worshiping or uh, spending their attention or putting their attention on. So maybe a crucifix, wearing a crucifix, or um, having a bunch of stained glass windows or, or like extravagant stuff. That becomes, for many Protestants, especially the Calvinists, a they see it as being an icon and taking away from God himself. And so that's why a lot of Calvinist church churches and Lutheran churches are very kind of plain and bare. Because one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not have any gods before me. And like this whole idea of idols is dangerous for many of the Protestants. And so they start, you know, breaking into churches and and smashing stained glass windows. Now that's not going to benefit them because they're going to get persecuted in in response to that. Um, And so you have a situation like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre that is orchestrated by the Valois family uh, against the Bourbons, who most of which were Protestant, uh, especially Henry Navarre. But the Bourbons are the strongest uh, force in this in this period. So um, when you have the St. Bartholomew's Day day, uh, situation or the Red Wedding, whatever you want to call it, um, you kill they they kill something like two or three thousand Protestants. uh, And in the process, this kind of kicks off this internal strife in France between the Calvinists and Catholics that is not just breaking stained glass windows. Now it's real. Um, Of course, the Bourbons went out. You get a a short period of tolerance between Henry and Louis XIII in France. And then later, Louis XIV will reverse that with the Edict of Fontainebleau, but in a period of absolutism, which I'll get to in a second. So if you like transfer over to the Holy Roman Empire about 20 years later, you get into the Thirty Years' War. And the Thirty Years' War is really a war of control. Um, The people in Spain that still controlled much of the Holy Roman Empire, as well as uh, Ferdinand, who ends up taking over, um, they start trying to purify their society again. And they're like, we're going to be Catholic again. And they start, they actually go in um, when you, when you have the the defenestration of Prague, um, you know, they go into Prague and they're like, Hey, you guys are going to be Catholic again. And these are members of the Catholic league sent by the current ruler of the Holy Roman, Roman empire. And they throw them out, out the window, right? Because they're clearly not going to convert. And it kicks off this series of battles, these four different phases of the Thirty Years' War. Um, what it ends up becoming is really a war of control than it is necessarily a war of religion. While religion is the premise, it's not really the uh, underlying factor for the entirety of the Thirty Years' War. Because if you see what happens from it, and this is what I would say is probably the most important component of the Thirty Years' War, is that it allows Switzerland independence. It gives the Spanish Netherlands independence from Spain. So they become the Netherlands, their republic, um, which they already were somewhat operating as one with just kind of the annoying Spain, Spanish being there. 
um, or trying to occupy them. Um, and then it grants religious tolerance for the Catholics, the Calvinists, and the Lutherans, which is the majority of groups at this time. There's a few pockets of other Protestant groups, but, and of course the Anabaptists, who everyone hates, but um, the, the Anabaptists are kind of the, uh, the anomaly in the Protestant groups because they, they don't want to fit into society to the point where they're willing to, they're almost anarchists. Uh, they're like, we're going to take over society, completely uproot, um, and make the church and state, uh, basically, we're going to take over the state. That's their idea. And that's dangerous for everyone. So that's what's going on in the Holy Roman Empire. And as far as the result, the Thirty Years' War is the Treaty of Westphalia, which is probably the most important uh, document in the early portion of uh, European history. At the same time, if you transfer to England, they're going to go through religious conflict starting around 1650, so only a couple of years later. And the Puritans are trying to gain more rights within their own government. Um, and they set up essentially a Puritan society for about 10 years in England. Now, it didn't take very well. Uh, most English didn't like the idea of going backwards when it came to uh, enjoying life and having fun. And in a Puritan system, those are not really the intent. The intent is work hard, God will bless me. Um, and so when Cromwell does that, um, and he starts pers persecuting the Irish heavily, um, at the same time, it kind of starts that underlying factor of persecuting the Irish by the English. Um, and what you start seeing from the end of that period is that England wants a sense of normalcy and they want uh, something that is far more moderate than a radical Puritan society. And they don't really want a really super strong king. They want something in between. Um, and so the English Civil War, even though it's kind of got this underlying factor of the Puritans being the merchant class and that new bourgeois class trying to get rights, it transfers into the English starting to recognize, okay, we don't really want Parliament totally in charge. We want a hybrid. And so by the time you get to the Glorious Revolution, it kind of solidifies that idea of a hybrid between a constitutional monarchy rather than having a strict monarchy or a strict republic or parliament. So that system works best for them and is probably the most utilitarian, utilitarian system uh, that they could have come up with. And that's uh, Glorious Revolution around 1689. Um, and that's where they bring William and Mary, William of Orange and Mary over from uh, the Netherlands, which was probably one of the most tolerant places uh, in Europe at that point in time. Um, as far as other conflict in, the, in that period, um, you're also talking about Louis' wars, um, Louis XIV, who's in charge throughout the period of the English Civil War, um, although, although obviously he's in France. He has his own issues. Um, so at the very beginning of his reign, he's taking over during the Fronde, which is a very strong uh, uprising against the power of the crown. And once he's with the help of Cardinal Richelieu kind of putting down the, the Fronde, um, Louis decides that it's in the best interest of his country to establish a very strict authoritarian rule um, and become the embodiment of France. So his uh, concept of one king, one law, one faith is really just a reaction to the unrest that preceded uh, him. In France, one of the reasons he goes to a singular faith as well and gets rid of the Edict of Nantes is because he sees 
the Fronde and, and uprisings like the Fronde as damaging to France. And he believes the only way to truly get France to a place where you, you see more civil rest rather than unrest is to create that singular uh, version. So he does that with the Edict of Fontainebleau. The other conflict that he gets involved in is the War of Spanish Succession, which um, it, it definitely does benefit uh, Spain or France, but it doesn't quite get the resolution that Louis probably wanted because he does kind of promise that he's not going to create a French-Spanish dual dynasty, basically. Um so that's one result. Um, the other thing that you see with Louis is that he becomes kind of someone that everyone else is going to model themselves after in the future. So Peter, who's looking at Louis and then also traveling through England, traveling through the Netherlands, is going to try to increase his own country through conflict. Um, in the beginning of the Great Northern War, he's kind of struggling to defeat certain countries in the north um, until he gets his army and navy up to speed with the rest of Europe. Um, and he does it through a series of different e events and uh, ideas, right? You have the table of ranks, which is meant to create incentive for people to move up in society. He forces his nobles to cut their beards and uh, stop looking so thuggish, and he's making them look more European. Um, he's investing heavily in the military. He's investing in creating St. Petersburg. Uh, he's drastically changing his country in a very short time and he's doing it through conflict. So um, he's, and he's not staying home. He's going to the battle and fighting with his uh, people. Um, he's probably one of the most hands-on kings we've ever seen in European history as far as being a, a key component of the physical um, labor of being king uh, rather than just ordering others to do it. Um, the other conflicts you see in this period have more to do with uh, colonial uh, conflict and overseas conflict over um, merchant wealth and gaining resources during the age of uh, exploration. So that period kind of spans a long period of time and uh, is definitely going to fund a lot of the war that's going on in, in Europe. I would say for us, the most important um, fight in the later part of the 1700s is the American Revolution first because it bankrupts France and it forces France into a position where they're unable to deal with the famine that's going to come very quickly after the American Revolution. And because they spent so much money trying to help us, mostly to weaken uh, Britain, um, they're not in a financial situation to f deal with famine. And most European countries are also in a very mercantilist stage in this period. And because they're in a mercantilist stage, it's harder for them to adapt to changing market conditions um, that are caused like a famine. The French Revolution is going to involve the entirety of Europe because when the French Revolution happens, you have an Austrian queen uh, with Marie Antoinette, which means that their family is going to be a bit upset, the Habsburgs. Uh, they're going to join. Um, you also see that many of the other traditional monarchies are going to be quickly offended by the idea of pure democracy um, and removing the old order. And so this is why many of the countries of Europe all attack France, because they're all afraid 
of this spreading to the rest of Europe. And that's probably fair as an assessment, because once Napoleon takes over after a failed revolution, he will take over the rest of Europe, essentially, and then put his family and family members and uh, friends in power in different places and kind of just mess up the map of Europe for about 15 years. Um, until uh, in, in the process, you have the Peninsular Wars, which I think are probably um, definitely show that the weakness of Spain at this time. You know, when you're forced to fight a guerrilla fight against France um, and your traditionally powerful country, um, I think it reveals your inadequacies as a um, former power, I guess, that is now a much weaker power. Um, you do get some art from that period that's important. The uh, Goya's Third of May, uh, which is probably the best example of early Romanticism in Spain. Um, you also see, because once this, the uh, French are going to leave, the Spanish go through a lot of civil conflict. Um, so Goya does his uh, Colossus, which is this giant like Greek figure picking up and eating people and it, like consuming, kind of like a... Uh, yeah, similar to the ideas that come up when Dali does uh, stuff on the civil, the Spanish Civil War. So, um, yeah, exactly. It kind of have that all-consuming monster. Uh, Napoleon then decides to invade Russia, which is always a mistake because Russia has winter, and winter is always coming. Um, so, when they invade Russia. Uh, Napoleon does it with 400,000 troops, and he'll come home with about 10,000, so that's a, a bit of an oopsie. Um, but what you see from that invasion is that the rest of Europe is still on this idea that they're worried about a really strong France, they're worried about revolutionary ideology, and they're ready to move towards more of a conservative era. And so from a historical perspective, this is going to be kind of the end of that era of liberalism that the Enlightenment had created, and a transition towards a conservative era for about uh, 30, 35 years, um, until you get to the wars of 1848, or the revolutions of 1848, which are all terrible and don't work very well. Um, so after that, you uh, transition to the building of militaries, which is the militarism phase of the late 19th century. Most of that is due to uh, overseas conflict, um, specifically things like uh, the Opium War that the English are fighting. Uh, eventually, at the end of the century, you'll have the Boer War that the English are fighting. You really just see an expansion, expansionist England, Britain, and many of the other countries are just building militaries internally, to either de deal with their colonies uh, overseas or marching towards eventual war. So um, World War I, obviously you have the, the five main causes of World War I, growth of militaries, uh, industrialism, and kind of a race towards industrialism, imperialism. Um, the assassination is obviously important, and that strong lift in nationalism uh, that starts really in the late 19. 19th century. But a lot of it comes from uh, the Austro-Prussian and Franco-Prussian wars in the late portion of the 1800s. So 
around 1860 uh, to 1870, in that period, that decade, you have both of those wars. And um, the Austro-Prussian War helps to shape um, Germany and northern Germany. It also helps the Italians gain some territory. Um, and the underlying factor is really the rise of nationalism that is being caused by a variety of factors. Probably industrialization is one. Um, I think also a lot of the German people felt that their identity was not really German. It was becoming very Austrian in a way. Not that they're significantly different because obviously Hitler took over Austria very quickly um, by just saying, hey, you want to be part of us? And then, yeah, sure, why not? Um, that's the short version. Anyway, um, when you look at the Austro-Prussian War, it helps in like form forming that northern portion of Germany. And then the, the Franco-Prussian War, it forces uh, the southern German states to come and ask for help uh, from Bismarck, who eventually will capture Louis Napoleon, who had created more of a conservative France at the time. Um, it's incredibly embarrassing for him, uh, and it kind of spells this uh, contention between England, or sorry, Germany and France um, for the next uh, 40 years. So uh, 40, 45 years. The rest of the, because Germany benefits heavily economically from that uh, Franco-Prussian War. Um, in the 20th century, when it comes to conflict, obviously World War One is important, but we already know the causes of that. The effect of World War One is probably the most important, right? So the, the Treaty of Versailles and everything the Treaty of Versailles does ruins Europe for 20 years. Uh, it, it forces Europe into a position where they can't react to changing market conditions. The economy is in a disaster anyway. Um, and when it starts going badly, they don't really have the ability to reverse course because the United States is not there to help because we also will join in the, in the depression um, and participate as well. So um, when you get to the worldwide depression, you see a reaction towards conservatism again, um, where more and more people want stronger rulers who will tell them what they want to hear. And uh, they're very nationalistic um, and kind of draw on the idea that it's about us. We need to stop thinking about um, helping other people. We need to deal with us. So that becomes a trend of the 19, uh, early 1930s and the rise of totalitarian leadership. Um, obviously, World War II will spell kind of the end of totalitarianism, at least in much of Europe. The only place that really continues that type of leadership is Spain um, under Franco, who lasts into the 70s. Um, and then Russia, because Russia is Russia, and they have their own revolution against a pretty ineffective leadership in the Romanov dynasty um, that eventually just die out uh, and make some vastly terrible mistakes in World War I in order to lose their country, essentially, uh, to the revolutionaries and the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, so... As far as World War II is concerned, obviously the, co the direct cause is the Treaty of Versailles. Some people try to dispute that, but I think it's hard um, to try to dispute that the Treaty of Versailles, at the very least, was one of the two major factors of the war itself. Uh, the other 
factor is probably the rise of fascism and totalitarianism. The concept of fascism is built on um, growth. And so if you're not growing, you're dying is kind of the idea. And if you're someone with that kind of almost existential ideology that you as a strong man or superman, ubermensch, can uh, take over society and recreate society on your own. Um, I think that's why you get such a strong uh, fascist movement and why many people start turning in that direction is because of the depression that preceded it. So there you go for now. All right, we're going to do an art review. And um, one of the things about art in the Western heritage is that it all starts with what we consider the most important component of the Western heritage, and that is our Greco-Roman past um, and Judeo-Christian tradition. So those two things will be the underlying factor for the Renaissance, which is the first major art period. And as far as uh, Greece is concerned, Greece believed that man was seen as the measure of all things. So when it comes to uh, art in the Greek period, there's a significant shift from traditional art where size mattered, where you had this, uh, the way that you identified leaders is that you made them significantly bigger than everybody else. I'm sure that all of us in middle school when we saw, you know, uh, Egyptian art can remember the giant pharaohs and then like the little stick figure people next to them that are like the peons, right? And the pharaohs were the only people that had a little detail. They didn't look great. They were sideways and, you know, that whole thing, flat, that whole thing. But the identifying of different um, social classes was very quickly identified by proportion. In Greece, they abandoned that to a point because what they believed is that man is the standard. And so if you can truly represent man, um, and that's part of the reason why all of the Greek gods are in human form. Um, they're, they're not, like even though they have some special quality to them, uh, they generally all represent what is good in man or what is bad in man. So um, that's where a lot of the, the Greek um, gods come from and their ideologies around that. So when that is the focus, when you get to the Renaissance period and people in the Middle Ages, they almost go back to this proportionality thing after the Greeks and the Romans. And they're like, we need to identify Christ as being bigger and a savior and halos and things that are somewhat unrealistic um, because they're storytelling, right? And then you get to the Renaissance period and they're no, they're, they're no longer just storytelling. It doesn't mean that they're not telling good stories because they are but they're telling them in a way that is far more realistic. It's far closer to the idealistic version of man that the Greeks believed that we could be. Um, and for the most part, they start to identify man as, again, the standard of perfection. Um, and that is a significant shift from the Middle Ages. So um, as far as what comes throughout the Renaissance period, you have all those uh, basic characteristics, uh, characteristics of Renaissance art geometric arrangement, perspective. Um, they start to do the uh, um, light and shadow, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And so um, once you start to get to that period, I would say that it's a slow progression. It doesn't just immediately become amazing art. Um, but once you get to Michelangelo's stuff or... Uh, Da Vinci's stuff, and once you start looking in the Northern Renaissance and what they're doing up there, 
you realize very quickly that uh, they are no longer worried about the church condemning them for taking a risk. Um, and Michelangelo, even though he does get condemned at times by the Catholic Church for some of his work, certain popes would cover his work because it was too risque, right? Um, even to, even that, uh, he's willing to do it. And before this, no one, no matter how good they were, was willing to challenge the tradition of the Catholic Church um, or the, the power that the, the Catholic Church had. So um, the Sistine Chapel is obviously one of the most important pieces of the Renaissance, both the ceiling and the uh, front altarpiece, which is the Last Judgment. Um, obviously, you know, I prefer the Last Judgment mostly because there's so much in the Last Judgment that's kind of cryptic, and he's, he's telling a lot of stories um, about even the people around him, right? So he's identifying the Pope at the time as Peter. Um, so he makes that reference of artists at, or uh, celebrities within pieces. So utilizing contemporaries as traditional uh, figures. Um, and obviously Peter's holding the, the key, which is a New Testament um, reference to that Peter is given the key to the kingdom, essentially. And so anytime you see a key in a uh, art piece, it's, it's Peter probably. Um, or a reference to him. Uh, and then you got, you know, the martyrs that he's uh, talking about. You also have his self-portrait where he's dropping himself uh, into hell, essentially into the boat to hell, because Michelangelo probably thought he was not going to heaven, um, especially since his run-ins with the Catholic Church uh, kind of made him think that. I'll give you the other most important pieces. The School of Athens is probably the best example of Renaissance art. It is a uh, geometric arrangement. It's perspective. It uses artists as celebrities. Uh, it also has a heavy reference to the Greco-Roman period. It is supposed to be Athens. So they're sitting there in Athens. Um, and you got Da Vinci in the picture. You got Michelangelo. You got Raphael himself uh, painted in there. So he's putting these masters of the Renaissance um, within the painting to kind of identify them as the greatest thinkers of their own time. Um, and so this piece, I think it, it just does everything as far as characteristics are concerned. And if you did get this piece in a short answer, you would probably kill it because it's pretty, pretty easy for the most part. Um, the Duomo is probably the most important architectural feat of its age. Um, Brunelleschi also is credited with not creating, but revealing perspective in painting as well. So, um, mostly cause he's, he, he was trying very desperately to understand how he could create a self-supporting dome. And he, in, in all of his sketches, he kept having to be, uh, much more precise and he started using perspective in order to create that precision within his drawings and sketches and other people started seeing it and they're like oh that's how you create perspective and so most people actually credit Brunelleschi with creating uh, or not creating but revealing perspective um, in painting and uh, he's not just a architect Brunelleschi is just a true renaissance man he's also one of the people that uh, tried to do the baptistry doors which he did a pretty good job uh, with the re relief for that, but um, loses out to his eventual uh, co-architect for the Duomo. Um, this particular piece took a very long time to do and is huge. It's almost half a football field 
uh, in size. The, the dome is. So the, the actual building is 150 yards almost. Uh, so that's a, a football field or so of cathedral with a, a half a football field or so of dome. And it's, uh, it's built in a way that the people that actually were building it didn't think it was going to stand. And so they would even stop building and Brunelleschi would have to climb the ladder himself, go to the top and start building and like, look, it's going to work. Um, and what he kept doing was just staggering and lightening the load as he got higher and higher to the top of the Duomo. Um, and once he showed the people, the, the workers that it would work, they were like, okay, we could do it, I guess. So like, cause he actually had to put his own life on the line that like, Hey, this is going to work. Um, because no one believed him. They, they thought you're insane. This is going to fall. Uh, you got to imagine this, this is about the size of, um, from my classroom to almost the end of the hall. And it's just got to support itself and it's all brick. So it, you thinking that could fall, I could die. Um, but it, it's a feat that, um, really is transitional as far as, uh, art is concerned. Um, the other thing you start seeing in ar- architecture, specifically in the Renaissance and then later in the Baroque era, is the uh, common use of the facade, which is F A C A D E, facade, um, which is probably best defined as giving a building a facelift because you are essentially just dealing with the front and leaving the rest of the building untouched. Um, if you walk through Rome or you walk through Florence, you will walk through these medieval cathedrals or next to a medieval cathedral and you come to the end of the uh, line and get to the next part of the street and you look over and you're like, oh, they have a totally new front um, that's built 200 years later. So um, what this is most of the time, now some of the early stuff is not this, but most of the time it's Baroque um, and most of the time it's due to the reaction the Catholic Church is having to the Reformation because the Catholic Church is essentially saying, come back look, we did a pretty thing over here, come back in the building, we kind of need you. Um, And so the Baroque era becomes this kind of more flashy uh, look at art, whereas the Renaissance period, and this is why this piece is technically Renaissance. um, And if you look at why it might be Renaissance, there's a strong reference to Greece and Rome in the um, arches, in the orders. Now they do have a Corinthian orders here, which are more extravagant. Um, there's basically three basic orders in the uh, Greek buildings, uh, Doric, Ionic, and uh, Corinthian. Corinthian is the most extravagant. Usually you see that in Baroque architecture where it's super extravagant. And Doric is usually used in uh, Renaissance architecture because it's simple and plain. And so if you look at our art in the neoclassical era, which is fast forwarding a long time, to, but if you look at the United States and go to Washington, D.C., Almost all of our stuff is in the Doric order. So it's very simple. Simple is better in that idea. Um, so it's, it is interesting to kind of identify those things. Plus, uh, most early Renaissance has that like tableau with a uh, triangle on top. So the ge- if you look at the geometric arrangement, I'll go back to this piece in a second. If you look at the geometric arrangement at the top, that's more of a Renaissance uh, thing than a, a Baroque thing. In Baroque architecture, um, it would be more pointy and almost like pointing you upwards. Whereas this just makes it feel complete and just clean. Does that make sense? So there's a a significant difference between um, the the Renaissance intent and the Baroque intent. Uh, As far as the North is concerned, the the three 
probably most important artists of the North are, are Van Eyck, uh, Dürer, um, who's probably my favorite to say. And then um, if you want to include someone other than those two, uh, I would include Bosch. Uh, Hieronymus Bosch is probably the weirdest of them. He's the one that doesn't fit the mold, um, but he's a very good example of Christian humanism, which is a key component of the Northern Renaissance. So in the Italian Renaissance, the whole goal is to feel like they are trying to strive for perfection or the ideal man. The goal in the North is to strive for uh, a return towards God, pointing people back to God, and identifying the South as being a bunch of sinners going to hell. So um, if you pick between the two as far as which one gets remembered more, it's usually the nice, happy one. And the one that's a little more preachy tends to be forgotten more, even though um, they might have been better. So Van Eyck's uh, two most important pieces are the, the wedding portrait, which uh, you could also call Onolfini uh, wedding. Now, this piece is important for a number of reasons. I, I would say the most important thing for it is the fact that he's actually doing it almost in three-dimensional by creating the extra painting from the other direction in the mirror. Um, so if you look at the very center of the painting, this is the one that has that mirror that paints backwards towards the uh, artist, um, which in 1434 is significantly past everyone else. Um, and then the Ghent altarpiece, which is probably the most important piece, and you can write this down, that was stolen by the Nazis and recovered by the Monument Men in World War II. The Ghent altarpiece was probably the most important piece that that happened to um, in that collection. It's pretty big, too. I'm not sure how... It's not easy to steal. It's... Uh, it's about the size of my, um, maybe half the size of my whiteboard. So it's a pretty good size piece. It's not a small piece by any shape or way, shape or form. Um, Durer is a traditional um, Christian humanist as well. I, I think that he was a little more conflicted than many of the other uh, Northern Renaissance artists because he actually did spend some time in the South. And he found out very quickly that he was a celebrity when he went to the South. Um, and they really enjoyed his work and treated him as such. And when he went back to the North, he was not. He was an average person. Um, and the difference between the two really has to do with the way that the Italian Renaissance really valued their artists because they thought them not as gods per se, but definitely in a way that's very different than the North because the intent in the North is to actually have... Um, everything go through a filter of that Christian humanist lens. And remember when we get to the uh, phase in the Netherlands where it's like that Protestant work ethic uh, ideology where, you know, you work hard, it's pleasing to God. And then other people are sitting there going, yeah, you might have a bunch of money, but be careful with that money because if you start spending too much of it, you're going to get lost in the stuff. And I think that that attitude permeates the North. And so artists are not valued like they are in the South. Um, and it's very different between the two. So Durer, I, I don't know if he ever thought, oh, I wish I lived in the South, but he definitely, when he traveled, he did identify that as a thing where like, oh my God, I'm a, I'm a celebrity um, when he shows up in Venice. And um, it, it's a little, 
a little different than what he enjoyed in, in the North. Um, it's like Band-Aid. Um, <laughs> and then you get to uh, the Baroque phase, which is also going to be mannerism in other places. Now, they're not the same, uh, but mannerism is mostly in Spain uh, and in Southern uh, Europe. The, the person who's probably the best mannerist painter is El Greco, um, who is named or his name nickname actually is the Greek because he was Greek and his actual name was impossible for the Spanish to say. So they nicknamed him the Greek, which he quite liked. Um, and so his stuff is probably the easiest to identify um, of any artists ever, ever. Um, I was randomly walking through El Escorial which many of the pieces in Escorial are done by him because he painted for uh, Philip II multiple times. Um, he was a court painter for Philip. And when you walk through Escorial, you can find his stuff very quickly because it's the only painting where it looks like the light and shadow is too drastic. You see how everything is super contrast in his stuff? Um, I would say he's probably the most he uses the most contrast of any painter probably ever. Um, and you can identify his stuff quickly based on the fact that the people are too long. Uh, they, they look like alien people that are long faces, long torsos, long legs, too long arms. Like everything's too long. It's like make them shorter. But um, he does that in every painting. And so he's very easy to identify. Um, if the faces are too long, it's probably El Greco. Um, this is his view of Toledo. Um, I've stood here. There's a, uh, a road outside of Toledo that you can stand in, and this is where he was painting uh, when he painted Toledo. But you see how the contrast is incredibly drastic. Uh, he utilizes the fact that it's kind of a cloudy day, but then the, shun the sun is shining brightly through the clouds. It's not just like, a, oh, I can barely see the sun. He uses that to create that contrast throughout the entire uh, painting. Um, so Baroque is, pro the, the father of Baroque art is probably Michelangelo. Um, at the end of his life, he starts transitioning away from Renaissance art to Baroque art. And because he's transitioning, there's going to be uh, a lot of Renaissance pieces that can get confused as Baroque and a lot of Baroque that can get confused as Renaissance. And quite honestly, that's not really a problem um, because you could probably have a lot of crossover between the two. The difference is the intent of the art. So it's if you look at the uh, one of the first places that Michelangelo worked was St. Peter's Square. And um, St. Peter's Square is not a square. It's kind of a circle, um, and it's got the oculus in the um, or the obelisk in the center, uh, which has the cross at the top, and then you got all of the the saints uh, at the top of the church, Saint Peter's Basilica, and the the goal of this this is where the Pope comes and speaks every year. Uh, the goal of this space is to make f people feel a part of something bigger than themselves. Y you want people to feel like it, it's encompassing them. It's part of who they are. And that they are participating in a in a in a grand event kind of thing, and so but Baroque art was meant to be ornate, which means almost over the top beautiful. Um, it's supposed to make you say ah, like it, you're not 
just supposed to be in the middle of the space going, eh, it's okay. Like you, you're there thinking, this is pretty amazing. Um, and to be fair, it, it is. Uh, I've rarely been in a space that is intentionally Baroque and not thought, wow, like this is different. So uh, that obviously this is a response to the Catholic or the counter or the Reformation. The counter Reformation is going to put an intent on art. They're going to also put an intent on missionaries and uh, education as really the three ways to combat the Reformation in the North. Uh, one of the other pieces that's probably the most important uh, sculpture in Baroque architecture or art is, uh, sorry, not architecture, art, is the SSC of St. Teresa, uh, which is a almost uh, sexual encounter in a way with uh, falling deeply in love with Christ and giving her entire life. It it's, comes from a story of St. Teresa uh, that was plunged through the heart uh, by like a an angel and she falls deeply in love and gives her everything to Christ. And um, it's supposed to be risque. Uh, and this is an altarpiece. So you walk into a Catholic church and you look at the front and there's this like almost risque piece of art and you're like ah, should I stay uh, and the, the point is it, it was supposed to attract people back uh, into the church looking at something that was different and not traditional um, and that's Bernini as far as painting is concerned the transition in Baroque art is that it's far superior to Renaissance art in regards to light and shadow so they utilize light and shadow to create um, the subject and theme of their paintings. So if you look at this, this is called the calling of St. Matthew. Um, obviously, you are seeing someone like calling him. But what is actually what is actually calling him is the light. Like it's directed right at him. Um, and they utilize that light and shadow in a far more effective way than the Renaissance. The Renaissance light and shadow is actually usually pretty bad. Um, if you look at most Renaissance art, the shadows sometimes even go both ways where you're like, that's not unless I'm looking directly with the sun directly behind me. The shadows shouldn't do that. But in every Baroque piece, you have a sp very specific. This is where the light is and everyone's shadow is on the same side. So it's properly done with perspective and that the distance away from the light also creates how long the shadow would be. So uh, definitely a different type of uh, light and shadow than in the Renaissance. Um, as far as like what comes next and what's most important going next, there is a period in between the Baroque era and the neoclassical era. I just don't like it. And I've never seen it on the exam. It is the Roc Rococo stage. It's awful. Um, I'm speaking from personal experience. No, it's just... The Rococo stage is, uh, you, you have, it, it's like the, the Harry Potter slash uh, Lord of the Rings version of art. And so you just have like random people with like a, a, a gargoyle on their chest that's, and they're like sleeping and it's like a random dream. It's just weird. And artists were trying to do something different and it, it, uh, it just gets interesting. I think. And then they get to the neoclassical stage and they're like, 
maybe we should go back to doing stuff that's more effective. Um, so neoclassicism is probably the most important uh, next coming phase of art. Um, most people consider it to start around the Age of Enlightenment because the Enlightenment is a reference to Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, the, the goal of the Enlightenment is to identify natural rights and the ways in which those natural rights should apply to government systems. Um, and so you will see, obviously, the French Revolution as an experiment in that. The Enlightenment will lead itself towards neoclassicism because all of the components of the Enlightenment have that strict reference to the Western heritage of the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian tradition. And so the art will also try to model that again. You're like, well, this is just the Renaissance regurgitated. It, it's not. Um, if the Renaissance is meant to be about the ideal man, the neoclassical era is meant to be about man becoming the new Greece and Rome. That's different. One is, I wish I was Greece and Rome. Now it's, I am Greece and Rome. We are Greece and Rome. When the Americans built the American system, there is an error in their system that we are the greatest country ever built. Look at D.C. And don't tell me that that's not us saying this is, this is the greatest country in the world. Because it is. We are sitting there going, look, we can do exactly what the Greeks and Romans did. And we'll build it perfect. Um, and then look at guys like Thomas Jefferson. His, his house is built. He's the architect of Monticello, which is built in that Greco-Roman styling, uh, the neoclassical styling. So many of our forefathers actually utilized those in their own houses because they're thinking we are Greece and Rome. Uh, very different viewpoint than the Renaissance. The Renaissance is like Greece and Rome is the best. Neoclassicism is we're just as good. Us. Um, so the most important neoclassical painter is Jacques-Louis David, thank you. Uh, so Jacques-Louis David is the most important neoclassical painter because he gets to paint the most important event of the neoclassical age, and that's the French Revolution. So he will be a court painter of Louis um, before Louis has his disaster and calls the States General, which was probably his worst mistake ever. It was his worst mistake ever. He should have just pretended they didn't exist, just like everyone before him. But... He does. And David, his early work, this is called the Oath of Haredi. Uh, it's a strict reference to the um, Romans. And you can tell by the, uh, what they're wearing, essentially. So, you know, they're wearing the sandals and the, the very Roman outfit uh, for the most part. They got the Roman, like, plume up the top of the hat and that kind of thing. Um, but this is actually a conflict between families. Um, and when they're going through this early neoclassical stage, much of their intent is just to tell stories of Greece and Rome. But then things change because the French have a revolution. And when the French have a revolution and they start deciding that they're going to change their government, uh, the intent of the art is going to also change because they are becoming the new Greece and Rome. And I would say the best example of that might be the tennis court oath, where you have this uh, group of people in what the college professors called a handball court, right? A, underground basement hand handball court that eventually call it, becomes known as the tennis court oath. Um, and they're all saluting this one person who's giving a, a, a speech in the center, probably Robespierre, because Robespierre is the star of everything in the early portion of the French Revolution, um, until he arrives at the top of his uh, plaster 
um, mountain in a toga and thinks he's God or something like that when he's lost it. So um, before this, he's really the perfect representation of what an Enlightenment thinker might look like in the political sphere um, and, and recreating the Greco-Roman ideologies. Um, the death of Marat is also probably one of the most important pieces of this period because, one, it references an incredibly important piece of the Renaissance, which is the Pieta. Yes, so the, the Pieta, which Michelangelo did in the Renaissance period and is probably his second best sculpture if we are grading him. Um, the David is probably his best. The second best being the Pieta um, is that, you know, Christ-like figure coming down from the cross, being held by Mary. It will be referenced here. It'll be referenced again multiple times in art history. Probably the most important next time it's referenced is Picasso's Guernica, uh, where he has the woman holding um, kind of exactly the same pose. But uh, what this does for the French Revolution is it makes Marat into a martyr uh, and kind of fuels the revolution going forward into the age of the reign of terror. So uh, Marat was always calling for terror, and then he dies and he gets what he wants, more terror. So I guess he died happy or something. Maybe. Although he was stabbed in the back. Romanticism. Um, as I've said before, Romanticism kind of is a transitional period, and some people have it marked a little later and ending a little later, but I would say the best marking for it is probably 1780 to 1850. You do see in um, music and in poetry, Romanticism going longer than in painting, because in painting, it's going to transfer over to more of the newer art stylings. Um, and get to Impressionism by the end of the 1800s. Whereas in um, painting and in poetry, Romanticism sticks around, like almost into the World War I era, because one of the key components of World War I is this very romanticized view of war, uh, mostly because they hadn't fought one in a while, and many of them wanted to you know, fight their war before they died. Ironically, that's what caused their death. Um, but... As far as Romanticism is concerned, uh, it does a difference between what came before it because it's really a rejection of the ideals of the neoclassical era and the Industrial Revolution. So the two things that are happening outside of this era that are probably most important for the, the Romantic artists are the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and urbanization, and all of those things are drastically changing people's lives. And if there's ever a hippie version of painters at this time, it's kind of the romantics, because many of them are looking at the changes of society and not seeing them as positive. So they're seeing most of the changes as having mostly negative impacts. Um, were they totally right? Probably not. But they are accurate that there are negative issues and they are bringing them to light um, on a consistent basis uh, what else we have probably the most important uh, romantic painters uh, it, in my opinion is probably Turner I'll get there um, this is one of the early ones Casper David Friedrich's Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog uh, the difference in Romanticism is that 
it's it's intended to be very emotional and not a typical like uh re- like in a renaissance piece you might have some emotion but generally not most of the emotion is like the mona lisa where it's like what are you doing are you smiling you're not smiling what is going on um in the romantic period r- emotion will be kind of the centerpiece of the painting so even though you don't see his face you're probably thinking when you see this, he's in heavy contemplation of what he's looking at. Like he's looking at something that is incredibly beautiful. It's, you know, we could probably put ourselves in his body and kind of feel, okay, what would that be like? And that's the intent, I think, where it's it's a little different than other places. Uh, I'm going to skip through this. So if you want the notes, I'll put them back up later. Uh, as far as the English romantics, the two most important are probably Blake and Turner. Blake is a little, uh, I don't want to say weird. He's definitely different uh, than most other painters. I actually don't find him very good, but he is uh, important because he's both a painter and a poet. Um, his stuff is very religious-based for the most part, uh, and he's critical of people that started to get into science and um, enlightenment thinking and urbanization and things like that. He sees those things as distracting from actually stopping and like enjoying what's in front of you. So a good example of that is probably uh, his piece on uh, Newton. So I think it's this piece here. Yeah, so this is his piece on Newton. And uh, there's a couple of things in this that I think, show you why he's uh, critical of science. So at first glance, you're sitting there going, oh, well, you know, first of all, Newton is ripped. Uh, secondly, um, he's naked, which, yes. Uh, but <laughs> third, what is he consumed by? Science. He's sitting there, like, staring at a piece of paper with a, uh, what is that uh, thing he called again? I haven't done math in a while. Compass. Yeah, yeah. I knew that. Uh, so you have, uh, he's sitting there with a compass, like doing, and, and the, what Blake is saying is, turn around. Like you're sitting in this uh, middle of like a coral reef on the side, and all of this nature is happening around you, and you're ignoring it. You're, you're completely invested in one little thing on the ground, and you're tinkering with that. If you just stopped and looked around, you would be enjoying the nature around you. Um, and so there's a, Intent, I think, in Blake's work and Turner's work to make people think, wait a second, there is beauty around us that we should be identifying rather than just simply, you know, becoming a cog in a wheel like in the Industrial Revolution. Um, so there's a heavy, like, criticism of that. Newton is ripped. Let's just, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So one of the things about Romanticism is that you see a lot of the Romantic painters really like the Renaissance uh, Baroque transitional period, which is like when Michelangelo's painting ripped Greek boxers. And so they all copy him. Uh, so all of Michelangelo's like ripped Greek boxers come back in the Romantic era uh, with a bunch of those guys. Um, Turner does mostly landscapes. You rarely see a Turner painting that it's like a portrait or something like that. He's a really d- odd dude, quite honestly. Um, if you ever see his like biopic, uh, it's not a documentary. It's like a bio, whatever it's called. Is it called a biopic? Um, he's strange, but he is 
eccentric. And um, what you tend to like about Turner is that you can't figure him out in a simple glance. So like when you look at his stuff, you have to look multiple times in order to actually get what he's doing. So in this piece, there's a, there's a little boat out here in the water. There's a, a, a bridge on this side. There's the, the train coming through the center. You have the rest of the town in the background, and then you have this very like almost orangish feel that you get in most of Turner's paintings because he's always heavily critical of the fact that England now has got smog just everywhere, and so he's, it's always in his paintings. Um, and he utilizes it to create this really heavy color. Uh, but his intent, and this, this, is, this piece is called Rain, Steam, and Speed, um, which is probably one of its most popular pieces. Um, the other stuff of his is uh, ships. There's usually water in most of his stuff. Um, this is called Slave Ship. And this is a reference to when in the slave trade, they used to... Uh, whenever they were going to either get boarded by a patrol boat um, or if the um, slaves got sick and they didn't want that sickness to spread, they would just throw them overboard. Um, and so in the painting, there's actually slaves just kind of scattered throughout and they're getting eaten by sharks. Okay, so when you first looked at this, did you see that? No, but if you ha took your time to go and like figure out what's going on, you're like, oh God, this painting has a lot in it. Um, and so he kind of, in a way, the way that he does romanticism is he makes it so that you have to stop and stare. Like you have to actually invest yourself. Um, and I think that's one of the critiques a lot of painters had of the Renaissance. It's like when you look at a Renaissance painting, a lot of times you're just like, oh, yeah, it's good. And then you can move on. In a romantic piece, you're like, what is he doing? Like, what, what's going on? Uh, and that's different. And that's, I think, intentional. Um, like I said, you're generally going to see water. So this is called Peace, Burial, Burial at Sea, which is kind of a reference to the medieval era when they used to uh, send you out on like a boat if you were like a king or queen and then shoot fire arrows at you and you'd burn at sea. Good times. Very Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is just European history regurgitated anyway, so it's all good. <laughs> What's that? With dragons, of course, but you know. The dragons are just the Nazis. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. Uh, the, fr <laughs> the French romantics. Um, so the, the French are going to be uh, very different than the English. The English stuff is a little bit more difficult to, like, make things out right away. Um, like I said before, remember how uh, I said that the French guy or the, the romantics also would paint that, like, Greek boxer kind of feel? A lot of these guys are in that style. Garakult and... Um, uh, a couple of the other guys will have some of that reference to Michelangelo in a lot of their pieces. Um, if I remember, Garakalt was mostly self-taught, meaning that he didn't have a um, he didn't go to art school like many French artists went to art school because in France you have to be like identified as a true artist usually to be respected in their art communities. Um, Garakalt was not, um, and he was outside of them, so. He, uh, he will probably be considered by most a transitional painter between uh, realism and romanticism. And then you have uh, Liberty. I think the next one here is Liberty Leading. Yeah, Liberty Leading the People. That's Delacroix. Uh, Delacroix, like Garakult, um, has a lot of that 
almost like nationalistic feel in a lot of his pieces. So for him, um, I would say he, he really liked the original French Revolution. And when you had the 1830 uprising and then later the 1848 stuff, um, Delacroix keeps kind of referencing, hey, remember when that revolution happened and the, you know, that. So he kind of has this continual reference, many of the French do, continual reference to the ideals of the original French Revolution. Um, obviously, the effect of it was hit or miss. Mostly miss. Uh, Goya. So Goya likes to paint people eating people. Um, this is uh, Saturn devouring his children. And I know that sounds like a weird topic, because it is. But um, this comes from a uh, legend that uh, Saturn was afraid that his children would um, grow up and defeat him, essentially, or take him over. And so he would eat them um, so that they couldn't do that. So uh, eventually what will happen is one of them will, will cut his way out of him, essentially, uh, and win that way, I guess. But um, the reason that Goya uses disturbing images a lot is because he's living through some of the worst period in Spanish history. Uh, Spain is on a steady decline in the 1700s, and by the time you get to the 1800s, um, Napoleon is taking it over. And then they're going to go through like internal strife and civil war as well after the Peninsular Wars. And so Goya is just constantly tormented by his surroundings and his, his experiences. And so he always has these like strong references to Greco-Roman legend um, in a lot of his pieces. And this, this is one of them. This is called Saturn Devouring His Children. His... Uh, probably most famous piece is this one. I've probably told you a couple of different times about it. It's called the 3rd of May. And if you look at this piece, you have uh, the central figure. He's in a white shirt to create the fact that he is the subject. Um, he's in a Christ-like pose because his arms are out uh, stretched and he's in this like innocent white. Uh, and then the people that are going to kill him along with the other traitors around him are nameless, faceless French soldiers who are just doing what someone told them to do. So uh, it becomes this um, incredibly emotional reaction to the Peninsular War and the ways in which the French are dealing with the guerrilla war that they're fighting in, Peninsular Spain, or in uh, the Peninsular War. Um, did I put Colossus on here? Oh, I didn't put Colossus, but I did put his dark art. Um, Goya goes a little crazy at the end of his life. Because he's living alone and he doesn't have any family left at the end of his life. Yes? Yeah, so these were on his walls. So what they did, and if you're ever in um, Madrid and you go to the Prado, um, they actually have his walls in a room and they've essentially recreated what the room would have looked like in a way um, by putting the walls on the wall, uh, essentially. And so, yes, as one does. And wait, I did that. Okay, so um, <laughs> anyway, um, so he has a bunch of, I haven't been painting on it yet, don't worry. Uh, he just has a bunch of wall art that he's doing in his uh, kitchen. And he's essentially this old man, like scribbling on the walls. And it's super dark. It's like demons and, and uh, uh, 
satanic festivals and and very just incredibly dark. He he's gotten to a, a place of isolation that uh, is difficult for him to express, obviously. Um, but I do recommend if you ever do go to the Prado to make sure to find the Goya um, section. And then, uh, did I put the, the dog in here? Oh, here's Colossus. And there's the dog. Uh, so the, the dog uh, it is probably, so um, Colossus is pretty, he's pretty jacked. Newton was more jacked. Yeah, his, he had back muscles. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you have um, Colossus, which was also kind of this Peninsular War thing where you have the giant France coming in and taking over and that kind of thing. Um, the one on the right is, in my opinion, is a self-portrait. You're like, that's a dog. Yes, it is. Um, but that is the loneliest dog I have ever seen. And um, what you see, when you see it, uh, and I don't have it when it's not next to Colossus, is that it actually, f it, it makes you feel alone. Like you do, you feel very alone. Um, and so I, I do actually think that it was either a reference to himself or it's essentially him painting as if he's the dog. Um, okay, let's go to something more cheery. I got to switch slideshows to Impressionism because they're all about making life beautiful. So cute. Okay. Uh, I will say, oh, there's less cannibalism in Impressionism, that's for sure. Um, I will say, and look, I made a cool list of all the things happening in this period for you. So I would take a picture because writing it down is not going to help you because uh, I'm going to go faster than that. Um, basically, I made a list of all of these things because uh, the 19th century, 18th and 19th centuries are full of revolutions and things all happening at the same time. Just to mess with AP Euro students. Love that. Thanks, history. Thanks, history. Okay, so. Also, I do wanna point this out just in case I don't later. The dual revolution is what to things happening at the same time. You have capitalism, which is the economic revolution, and a political revolution that's happening at the same time. So you have the French Revolution, American Revolution. That is what we call the dual revolution, which will eventually spawn the age of conservatism. Now, the age of conservatism doesn't exactly get rid of capitalism, but it does very much want to get rid of liberalism, and it tries desperately to do so for a period. And then it leads into a period of nationalism because people stop getting, they stop wanting to be told what to do, and so they're like, we should feel more German or something. And um, we should be Italian. And so they start playing around with that ideology. Eventually, you'll get to these things that all lead to the war. Um, but all of these things matter in the, the course of history because it all like accumulates in the 19th century. If there's any century that I would spend time on that maybe you don't know well enough might be the 19th century. Like I would go back and look at the 19th century again and, and see kind of how it all fits. Because once you realize that it's kind of just a ping pong between liberalism and conservatism, which is what it is. Uh, it starts in a liberal era, goes conservative, then goes liberal, then goes conservative, then goes liberal. It's just a ping pong of it. Um, so, oh God, France. Now, France, they try to do their own thing. So they're not gonna fit everybody's like time periods. 
Most people consider the end of the neoclassical era, at least in painting, to be early 1800s. And the French were like, why don't we make our whole city neoclassical in 1860? Which is later. And they don't finish it until 1890. Now, if you've spent time in Paris, anyone been to Paris? Okay, so Paris, one of the things about Paris is all the buildings are the same height, right? When you go to Paris and you're in the old part of town, not the new, new, new part, you're in the old part where everyone goes, all the buildings are the same. You can't build a building in France that's higher than that. And you're actually not supposed to build buildings that are lower than that. They're all the same size because they're meant to be appealing to the eye. And it is. Paris is a beautiful city. Um, but they reworked it in the 1860s because, anyone know why? Yes. Yes, he did like moving troops around, and it's easier when you make the streets wider. But there was another reason they made the streets wider. Yeah? Yeah. In France, every time they want to revolt, they're like, to the barricades, and they throw the barricades out, and there's little streets, and it's like, we're in the middle of a revolution. So they're like, make them wider. It's going to be harder to barricade. So they make the streets wider to stop revolutions. It's brilliant. Um, it did, most, mostly. Um, but they're French, so they'll find ways. Now they're just like, let's strike and walk through the streets instead. Um, so anyway, you can't stop the French. They're French. Now, the uh, Eiffel Tower is also built later in that period. It was actually built for a World's Fair. And um, many of the Parisians thought it was an absolute monstrosity. Like, they hated it. Like, why did you put that big pencil-looking thing in the middle of our town? Um, and so uh, eventually they like it. But the French never like something initially. They always take some time. Um, it grows on them. And then they're like, oh, that's Mars. Don't talk about our Eiffel Tower. Um, but... Funny enough, when Hitler gets there, they cut the power to the elevator, so he has to walk, which is fun. Also a very Parisian thing to do. If you want to walk up our Eiffel Tower, you can walk. Use the stairs. Okay. Um, <laughs> the other thing they created is the metro in, uh, at the end of the period. Um, and so it's actually a really easy town to get around in, for the most part, unless you're driving, and then it's just a disaster. Total disaster. Um, just go to Napoleon's Arch de Triomphe in, in Paris, and you realize the disaster because it's, it's a giant circle, like a traditional circle, um, but it's just cars everywhere. And that's why they actually had to tunnel under to get to the arch because no one could get there anymore. They're like, we've got to build a tunnel. Um, so they did. They, they built a subway that you can walk under to get to the arch so that you can go in the middle of the giant disaster. Okay. Um, impressionism. So, Impressionists, so let, let me be fair, and, and I, I hate that I started this way, but in my younger days, I hated Impressionism with a, with a passion. Because I was like, life isn't pretty. I was, I was too much of a cynic. And then I had children. And I realized something. Life is beautiful. That's it. No more emotions the rest of the day. So, yes, back to the cannibalism. Okay, so impressionism used to bother me. Because I was like, you're just taking the ideal everything. I hate this. Um, but the, the point is, they thought 
because there, there's a, a mini art period in the middle of Romanticism and um, Impressionism called Realism. And it's really dark almost because it's like slave labor and industrial labor. And it, it, I don't spend much time talking about it, but it, it, it exists and it's in that period. And the Impressionists are like, why do we have to just do everything that's negative? And so the Impressionists go, we're going to do it different. We're going to go sit in the middle of a field and just paint something beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, I know. Ugh. So that's what I used to think, I promise. Um, but what's kind of cool about it is they only paint what they see. So you can't, if you're a true impressionist, you can't be like, go and take a mental picture and then paint the rest at home. No, you go and you finish where you're painting. So you paint what you're seeing, not what you thought you saw. Um, and so it becomes almost a really good positive representation of what they're seeing. So um, let me give you an example before I, oh, I should have put a better example. But this one works. So if you're someone like uh, Pizarro, uh, I could also bring out some Monet Monet stuff, but, you know, I don't like water lilies still. Um, now, some people do, I know. Uh, <laughs> It's in the Musée d'Orsay, so if you're ever in Paris and you don't want to see the Louvre because it's a monstrosity, you can go to the Musée d'Orsay, which is uh, less of a monstrosity. Okay. What he did is he paints the boulevard, and he's doing it in real time. So he, he rents a flat and just sits there at the window, and he's painting the boulevard um, all day long. And the, the thing about Impressionists is that they have to paint in windows because... If you're painting a midday scene, you can't keep painting in the afternoon because the shadows are all wrong and the people are in different places. And it's, so you have a, a window that you can paint in. And so just every day within that like two hour period, an impressionist is sitting there going back to the same spot and painting over and over again. Um, it, it's actually incredibly planned and it, it tends to end up, regrettably so, coming out nicely. <laughs> I'm still having an internal struggle, as you can tell. So a good example is, if you look at this piece, this is the boulevard in uh, autumn. This is the boulevard in winter. So he basically takes the same piece and paints it again in a different season. So he comes back, right? And he's doing the same thing. And, and a lot of uh, impressionists have very seasonal work. So they'll do a lot of times a series of art where uh, they'll do all the seasons, um, winter, spring, summer, fall, which is also kind of beautiful, I guess. So um, did I, I forgot someone and I didn't mean to. I'll move on. Here's a couple of uh, quotes about Impressionism that I think are poignant. Impressionist painters paint reality and presume to render the very impression of nature. That's the goal. Um, and that's Emile Zola. Uh, Jules Antoine Castagnari, which has a pretty good French art critic name. They do not render a landscape, but rather the sensation produced by the landscape. So they're supposed to make you feel like you're there rather than um, the other way around. And then um, everything painted on the spot has a strength, a power. I got to get out of my thing because I can't read the end of vividness um, rather than uh, doing it, you know, looking at it and then going home and doing it at home. So uh, that, that's the goal 
of uh, Impressionism. And then after Impression, oh, you got Degas, who's got an odd sensation with ballerinas. But the reason is because Degas um, wanted to do something he saw as pure beauty in motion. And so that's why he starts having this fascination with ballerinas. So he's like just, he has series series of uh, dance class, essentially. So there's one. I would show you more, but it gets repetitive, as you can tell. Um, now, once you get to the 20th century, they start transitioning away from life is beautiful because of the war. Because when you get to the war, everyone's like, life is no longer beautiful. We all killed each other. And the, those of us that came back don't have legs or arms or, you know, yeah, legs, arms, hands, whatever you're missing. Um, and so, see, back to the cannibalism. So, um, and you have a Dali who likes to do cannibalism a lot. But what is significantly changing is the way that art is going to actually become even more critical of society. So uh, if you look at these post-impressionist era, surrealism, fauvism, dada uh, period, and modern art, most of those periods' intent is to be critical of the powers that be. Um, if you read the Surrealist Manifesto, which is a bit of a wordy, uh, ironic statement in its intent, is them saying, if you have or do anything that we find to be wrong or taking advantage of other people, we're going to call you out. And that's the Surrealist Manifesto. So if you look at a lot of the Surrealist paintings, like Dali, um, he's incredibly critical of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, he's incredibly critical of world events. I showed you guys Dali's uh, Birth of Man, where you had the uh, United States being birthed out of the egg-shaped world. Remember that? I'll show you, but I have to change, uh, I have to change slides in a second. So, um, and, th and I'll end here because uh, this is the end of... I, I thought this was going to be a shorter section, but apparently it's not. Sorry. Oh, it's only an hour. I thought it was going to be 30 minutes. It's not my fault. It might be my fault. I'll take some responsibility. You guys remember these slides? This is the, uh, yeah, best unit ever, for sure. By far my favorite. Um, so there's your reference in Guernica of the Pieta over here. So she keeps popping up. Um, she and he. And then, Dali, Dali, Dali. Cannibalism, yes. <laughs> Birth of geopolitical man. Uh, so that's the United States being born as a world superpower in about the year 1943. So essentially when we're joining the war, it's like, hey, <clears throat> wake up, U.S. We need you. Um, and so Dali is being kind of foresight that, hey, this is the new superpower jumping out of this egg-shaped globe. Um, pretty cool. You guys have, remember these? Slave, uh, slave Market with Disappearing Bust of Voltaire, which is the most ironic painting probably of all time because Voltaire is the embodiment of freedom and a slave market is the antithesis. And you mix them and then you make it hard to figure out what's what because you 
make the slaves into Voltaire's eyes. It's brilliant. Anyway. What? Apparently, Xavier took the day off on that one. <laughs> so, uh, so some people have a hard time seeing Voltaire in here, or they see the Voltaire thing first and they can't see the other stuff, but anyway. Um, clocks, and then this one I, I went over in class, right? This is my favorite Dolly by far, because uh, it's, it's fusing like all of Western heritage together. Uh, you have the Raphaelesque head, which is the reference to the Renaissance. You have before that the reference to the Pantheon, which is that Roman dome with the oculus that comes down. Um, and then you have the atomic age, where you're essentially blowing up the Western civilization uh, with nuclear power. Um, so it's, it's kind of a converging of the three, what he considers probably the three most important time periods in Western uh, tradition. Um, Magri, Magri. This one's always just funny because she's in a box. <laughs> um, that probably sounded weird on the podcast, so I should probably go back. Uh, Magri is painting Jacques-Louis David's piece where there's a woman sitting on a thing, and then he puts her in a box because she's in a box. And that, okay. What? Because she's dead. But see how she her, her dress is still coming out of the box? You're messing with me. I'm moving on. Uh, you got the fur cup, which is the definition of art, right? That art is done for art's sake rather than anything else. So this one, uh, as far as 20th century art is concerned and postmodern art, is the idea that a toilet is art. Because if you cut it out of the wall, remove all of its purpose other than standing it in a museum, it now is art for art's sake. So that's kind of the phrase you should use for 20th century art, art for art's sake. Um, everything before this had purpose, essentially. You go back to the very beginnings of art itself, and you look at pre, like people just moving around 10,000 years ago, and you find their art. What do you think their art is? No. That's cave art. I'm talking about like trinket art. What, what do you think the trinkets are of? Those of you that are in art history will know this very well next year. But um, Pregnant women. Because it's about life itself. So things that matter to your culture are going to be the first thing that people generally put out there. That toilet is a drastic step away from a pregnant woman. These are intellectual changes in European history. And we are going to start with science. The two significant uh, theories that led towards the traditional Western tradition are the Judeo-Christian tradition and the Greco-Roman version. And so in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the reason that they believe that there was a geocentric earth rather than a heliocentric uh, universe, I should say, is that in Joshua, there is a story of the sun standing still and God or Joshua asking God to make the sun stand still. Uh, of course, that would imply that the sun is moving, um, which it's not. Uh, and what Galileo will actually argue later in much of his writing is that this is not an error of God's. This is an error of perspective. So what Galileo is saying is um, for Moses or Joshua or whoever is writing this, 
they are doing it through the, the lens that they can see. And so for them, they're thinking, the sun is going down. I want the sun to stop. And so what Galileo is saying is, we should not base an entire tradition on someone's perspective. Okay. And then some people are like, well, that means the Bible would be inaccurate and we can't throw that out. And, and Galileo is like, that's not what I mean. I just wanted, Joshua just wanted the sun to stop. So Galileo tries to explain this. The other view that led to the traditional geocentric uh, theory is the uh, Aristotelian view. And since Aristotle is considered to be one of the most influential of the uh, Greek philosophers, if, if we consider the triumvirate of amazing Greek philosophers, you have uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Most people consider, consider Aristotle to be the most scientific of the three, as he should be, because he's pretty much the only one that did science. The other two didn't really believe in science. Uh, Plato thought that you could think your way to a conclusion, kind of the uh, Platonic view, and Aristotle believed that you could actually do experiments in order to come up with conclusions. So, because the Greco-Roman view coincided with a Judeo-Christian view, that became the view of the Western world going forward. And anyone that challenged that view would be challenging the very structure of Western society. So I would say that the scientists of the scientific revolution have about 2,000 years of history to be fighting, which is not easy, generally. Um, the first person who starts this kind of process towards the heliocentric theory is Copernicus. Copernicus was a Polish cleric, uh, which means that he was actually part of the church itself. Um, and so he was never intending to disprove the church. He was trying to understand the world around him. Um, and like much many of the scientists of their period, um, they are not anti-Christianity. They are actually trying to reveal God's handiwork rather than uh, the opposite. So that is one thing that you want to kind of uh, separate between the scientific movements of the uh, early um, uh, European periods versus the later periods in the 20th century when you get to new physics. Many of those scientists are not doing the same science with the same intent. Um, that is changing. But it takes a while. So you never want to write an essay that says that, you know, early scientists are trying to challenge the Catholic Church. That's actually not their intent. Many of them tried to convince the Catholic Church they were correct, but Galileo accepted house arrest rather than, and recanted, essentially said, I'm wrong, rather than die. Uh, so, um, and it's not just because he was trying to save himself. It's also because he, he actually thought it might be too much for the Catholic Church to deal with the scientific revolution and the Reformation, because both are kind of happening at the same time. Um, so Copernicus, um, like I just said, you, you kind of have that background. Kepler and Brea do the math. Uh, they, they chart the sky. They chart planetary movement. Um, they start realizing that the uh, movement around the sun is in elliptical fashion rather than circular, uh, which helps in actually identifying the sun as being that kind of gravitational pull um, on a lot of the other planets. And you have this kind of the elliptical theory is, is really based around this idea of like almost like a slingshot. Like you go as far out as you can away from the gravitational pull and then you get 
slung back the other direction. Um, and so your your pattern is not this perfect circle, but rather this closer, farther, closer, farther kind of thing uh, based on an, uh, an elliptical pattern. Um, so they started charting uh, the sky and um, Kepler, Kepler dies uh, before they publish. Brea finishes the work um, and publishes. And uh, Galileo looks at their findings as well as Copernicus's findings. This is also after the printing press has been created, which actually helps drastically the spread of the scientific revolution because guys with the means to read and the uh, desire to read had more ability to look at other people's findings rather than doing work in isolation, which in the past, if you think of it, most scientists are essentially working alone. Um, and it's a lot easier to work in groups, especially if you're trying to get different people's perspectives on uh, maybe you're really good at certain components of science, but you're not so good at the math or you, you like that for some of these guys, you needed help um, getting to a conclusion. So Galileo um, will eventually do the, the probably the quintessential work on the heliocentric theory. Um, and he was a very devout Catholic uh, in an era of reformation. If you look at his uh, dates of uh, aliveness, his life, he is alive from 1564 to 1642. So he's alive well after the Reformation has already started. Okay, so the Council of Trent's pretty much almost over now, right? Because I think the Council of Trent's like 1550 to 1560 or something like that, uh, maybe a little earlier. And so um, Galileo is living in a world that is divided. For the first time in European history, they have a division between Catholic and uh, Reform. Um, and so Galileo is trying not to rock the boat. At the same time, many of the Protestant leaders will start backing the scientists because they see it as an opportunity to further destroy the power of the church, the Catholic church. Um, and so guys like Luther, guys like Calvin, um, directly actually, uh, support scientific movements because they see it as, Hey, we're just like you. We're trying to reveal God's goodness and his abilities and his, as a creator. Um, and so, you know, your, your Newtons and your Galileos and guys like that, um, Luther and Calvin pretty much went along with it. They saw it as an opportunity. Whereas the Catholic Church is creating the Index of Forbidden Books and saying anyone that is challenging the traditional structure of the Western heritage is going to be going over here. So they put all of the great works over there. So people can read them later. Um, the first kind of pre-enlightenment thinker uh, that goes in line with this new idea that is created in the scientific revolution of the mechanical world, you have Newton come up with his different laws of gravity. Um, and Hobbes is going to start with a social contract theory um, that is kind of an infant version of it. Um, he is writing during the English Civil War. The English Civil War is a bit of a disaster. Uh, it's fought, you could, you could probably point to a number of different factors that lead to this uh, English Civil War. Um, I would say that Charles was an incredibly poor leader um, who really did not know how to work with Parliament. And once the Parliament is filled with Puritans who... Uh, essentially see them as, themselves as having very little power and really only being called so that they can raise their taxes. 
um, the Puritans start asking for things like rights and crazy things like that. And uh, Charles starts signing papers and then he realizes very quickly he's like giving power away. And so um, he starts just dismissing parliament randomly um, or calling them. They ask for stuff. He dismisses them. And then they do it again and again. Eventually, they get to the, what we call the long parliament, where parliament decides they're not leaving. So they sign a document that says the king needs to make sure that he calls us every year and um, he can't dismiss us. And the king comes in, finds out what they're doing, says, what are you doing? We made a document that you can't dismiss us. And he goes, go home. They're like, nah. <laughs> so they stay and he goes, gets an army. You have the English Civil War, roundheads versus uh, cavaliers or parliamentary roundheads versus the noble uh, monarchical side, which is the cavalier royal side. Um, and so the English Civil War is where Hobbes is writing and Hobbes is a royalist. So Hobbes is thinking this whole parliament rule by parliament idea is a disaster. It there's too many people involved. He writes his book, Leviathan, based on uh, his concepts of what the state of nature is. And where Hobbes goes with it is the idea that, you know, without a strong singular ruler, society is going to boil down to a nasty, brutish, and short version of life. That it's just a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Um, so he says, rather than having a bunch of people in charge, you should have one person in charge that everyone kind of gives their power to. And because there's a commonwealth of power in one singular ruler, they have the ability to make decisions quickly that need to be made. They are so strong that people are afraid of him and will make sure to not do bad things because they're afraid of the consequence that he is going to bring down on them. Um, and what Hobbes sees with Parliament is that the English Civil War is a disaster. Like, they go through the process, they win the English Civil War, but then when they're in charge, uh, they turn into martial law. And then Cromwell, who's the leader of the parliamentary army, um, eventually takes over. He, he actually has what we call the new model army in the English Civil War because they were a very almost religious army that had a catechism that they all signed um, that basically called themselves God's warriors in a way. Um, and a common hair, like their, their common bond was their Puritanness. Um, and so they were incredibly effective because remember, what is a key component of Protestantism? Protestant work ethic. And so the new model army had a really strong work ethic. They all thought I'm doing God's work. Uh, I'm working. And so they're incredibly effective. Um, problem is Cromwell finds very quickly that parliament's very difficult to work with also. And so he disbands them eventually. And he, after he gets to his rump parliament, where he gets rid of everyone that doesn't agree with him, uh, then he disbands, disbands the rump parliament and rules as a dictator for a little bit until he dies. And then his son takes over and then the whole system comes down. And, and the English are so upset with this whole experiment. They're like, we'll take a king again. Don't care. Uh, and so they go back to Charles II, who's actually quite fine. And then you get James II, and he's a disaster. And so um, then you have a glorious revolution, and then everyone's happy because it's kind of the middle ground between both. Now, going back to uh, Hobbes, Hobbes's version of the social contract uh, is where everyone kind of pushes their power into one thing, 
and that singular commonwealth of power goes into one person who can execute things quickly. Locke, a little bit later, you have the dates on Hobbes. Hobbes lives till 1679. Locke is born in 1632, so he's significantly younger um, than Hobbes. But what Locke starts getting into are basic natural rights that are based on scientific, a scientific mechanized world. So if the world has a structure and is a system, then natural rights should fit in that system. Uh, and so he believes that rights like life, liberty, and property should be protected by your government because those rights are natural. Um, now, what he believes is that the divine right of kings is actually nonsensical. And the reason it's nonsensical is because he goes back to the Bible, like many of the Protestants do. I don't know if Locke was a Protestant. I can't speak for Locke. But in the Old Testament, before the uh, Jews eventually pick Saul, or uh, God picks Saul for the Jews, um, through a prophet. Anyway, before that, it's the reason that they get a king is because they ask for one, because they keep fighting different places, and they realize very quickly they're like the only group without a king. Like, why don't we have a king? And so eventually God gives them a king. But what guys like Locke argued was that this was not the natural order. It was an unnatural order that you essentially asked for rather than the other way around. Um, and so what Locke will eventually come up with is his version of tabula rosa, which means uh, when you are born, you are essentially a blank slate. So you have... Um, the ability to shape somebody based on that blank slate, you can kind of write on them and turn them into uh, eventually a, a good working member of society. And he believed that's the only way you could create a republic is to essentially train people how to live in one. So one of the key components that every Enlightenment thinker really will have, even if they don't say it, is that they believe that education is incredibly important for a democratic society. Because without education, people will regress back towards Hobbes' state of nature of uh, life is nasty, brutish, and short. But the more educated people are, the more easily they'll fit into a democratic system. Um, Rousseau is probably the most important um, in regards to the new version of a social contract and what is going to be experimented most with by Jefferson and Robespierre and guys like that that are writing these new documents like the uh, Declaration of Independence or uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man um, where you're describing positive liberty. Um, and... The, the, we, we've done positive liberty before. It's kind of this uh, difference between the general will versus the will of all, where you know people might want to do something that is in their own best interest, but at the end of the day, it's probably not in the best interest of everyone. And so rather than doing that for yourself, you realize that it's better for everybody if you kind of tone down your wants and needs and desires. So what, he, what that's called is positive liberty. So you give up some of your freedom in order to get the most amount of freedom that you can in a society. So I can't do whatever I want, but I can do some things I want as long as it doesn't infringe on someone else's freedom. 
to do what they want. Um, and obviously, you're still going to have a clash at different times. But the, the goal is to reduce that by recognizing in each other positive liberty. Um, and he has a strong emphasis on uh, education in order to build civic virtue, uh, the same type of virtue that Maximilien Robespierre tries to build through terror, which is less effective, generally. These violent means have violent ends. Yes. Um, so, the other most important thing that happens in the Enlightenment is the birth of America and capitalism. The two greatest things on the same day. No, the same year. And, yes. So, Adam Smith is describing, not inventing, the system that is happening in the Netherlands and in England that relies on a laissez-faire approach to intervention by the government. Um, laissez-faire strictly means to stay out of business uh, or stay out of things. And so the goal of uh, Smith's version of capitalism is to remove the government from intervening uh, in the economy like a mercantilist system. Uh, mercantilist systems are built traditionally to help create a strong crown or a strong central government. Um, they're not generally done in the best interest of the people. Um, th their intent is to be in the best interest of the people, but what ends up happening in a mercantilist system is generally it is not very responsive to changing market conditions, whereas capitalism is the most flexible system that we have seen to date. Uh, does it have its issues? Sure. But is it flexible to changing market conditions? Absolutely. Um, and so while it does have... Uh, drawbacks, especially by the time you get to the Industrial Revolution um, and people start seeing some of the inequity that you see in the Industrial Revolution or the um, ways in which we are kind of not abusing but utilizing workers to maximize profit, um, there will be some contention, to say the least. Uh, as far as major contribu contributions of the Enlightenment, this is probably a good list. So if you want to take a picture, you can do that. Um, scientific methods done by Bacon and Descartes. Social contract by Hobbes and Rousseau. Natural rights by Locke and Rousseau. Separation of powers, which is what our constitution is created out of, or our government uh, system. Religious freedom, free speech is Voltaire. Prisoner rights is Beccaria and others. Um, women's rights is Wollstonecraft. She argued that women were unequal because they were uneducated. And if you gave them the opportunity to be educated, that they could prove that they were equal. But if you force them to not have the same leg to stand on, then uh, how are you expecting them to be in an argument with you about politics if they can't read or they don't have the ability to go to higher education. And so Wollstonecraft argued that the way to even the playing field is to essentially educate women and then give us a chance. So economic liberalism, of course, is Smith. Yes. A component of white man's burden did become uh, education. Um, there 
it's contentious as well, though, because education in the Western sense is Western focused. And so it does um, have elements of a disregard for other cultures. And uh, so while some of that work was actually being done in a positive way, some of it had negative consequences for traditional cultures. So um, remember that every decision, every thing, every event that happens will have positive and negative externalities. Um, you just have to, in retrospect, realize what those are and then try to rectify them uh, after the decision was made. So as far as what's happening with the growth of the Enlightenment is the growth of liberalism, which is this idea that the individual should be protected rather than the other way around. It, the, the old system of government in Europe was built on the individual protecting the king. Now the new system is supposed to be that the government is supposed to protect the individual, um, which is a significant shift from previous generations. The American and French revolutions are the best examples of this shift. Um, the American Revolution obviously being a more successful version. It doesn't come without its own issues. Obviously, in the United States, in our birth, the amount of people that could actually participate in our government was far closer to Rousseau's elective aristocracy than it was a democracy in the modern sense. Um, you had to be older. You had to be sometimes even uh, own land. Um, you know, things changed over time. Obviously, we also had slaves, so there's some hypocrisy in the whole freedom thing. Uh, but we had a start. And I would argue that our Constitution is, is really, really effective because it has the ability to change. Um, and that's something that the Founding Fathers built into the Constitution, is the ability to change it when generations changed. And they knew that no system could be good forever. It, that systems had to change with culture or time. And I think that that is a positive of the American Revolution for sure. Um, in the French version, they try really hard. There's lots of good things that come from the French Revolution. But they kind of fail. And I'll tell you why. Um, right when you get to the Bastille Day and then the Paris Bread March, those two events spawn popular violence. And so while even Jefferson said the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants, the problem with starting a revolution through violence is that you will probably end that revolution through violence. And someone might say, well, how is the American Revolution different? I think it's significantly different for a variety of reasons. Number one, the British didn't live here. Uh, the British lived there. Now, some of them did occupy us, that's true, but they had somewhere to go back to. In the French Revolution, there's no, like, place for the royals or the nobles to go back to. Like, we live here, too. Um, and so what happens in the French Revolution is that they're fighting themselves. It's a civil war, essentially, um, much more like our American Civil War. And as we all know, the American Civil War has had effects for generations, right? It's the same in France. 
it's a civil war, even though it's called a revolution. And it's done in such violent means that people uh, are unable, and, and that's why they have five republics, because every time they make one, they if something big happens that kind of resets the dial, and then they have to try again. The other thing I would argue with our revolution that's significantly different is we're a brand new country, and it's easier to start a new country than it is to fix an old one. Um, it, old countries have tradition. That's why even today, the British technically have a king and a queen, or a queen, and a royal family, and constitutional monarchy. And that's because those are remnants of medieval Europe. But their tradition shapes who they are. We don't have that tradition. We have no tradition. Um, and so we get to shape ourselves differently. And I would say that's a significant advantage uh, over the French Revolution. And when Robespierre, who starts out as being anti the death penalty, gets to a place of the reign of terror where he's advocating for the justification of the use of terror, he's clearly lost it. And he's lost it in an effort to save the revolution. He thinks he's doing what's best. And remember when we talked about this when we talked about communism? Communism gets to the same place that democracy gets when democracy thinks that it needs to kill anyone that disagrees with them. So when you live in a democratic society or a freely elected society, and then you finally get to the place where you're like, we need to kill anyone that disagrees with us, you've lost it. doesn't matter which system you started in. It's still going to not work at the end. Um, and really, the only thing that ends that part of the French Revolution is the death of Robespierre. Because when he dies, they realize maybe we should stop killing everyone. It might help. Or we'll all die at some point. Which I guess is probably life, but you know what I mean. Um, okay. I put this in here so that you could see the structural changes of the liberalism and enlightenment for government. Um, in the American Revolution, it demonstrates that you no longer need a king. Uh, it demonstrates that you can create a system based on natural right. And that you can create a system that is similar to an elective aristocracy or a republic. That those systems can work. The other things that changes is it shows that you no longer have to have a society built on nobility. Although some people would argue that today we still have nobility in the United States. It's just called something else. Yeah, the 1%. Um, it allows for versions of freedom of thought and religion. And it does protect the majority of people. Like, but they own slaves. Yes, they did. They did. They did. So, uh, at the end of all of this, what the Enlightenment does for Europe is, in Europe it fails under the French Revolution. It succeeds in a way in England at having more of a hybrid system between uh, democracy and, and monarchy. And it succeeds in ways in other places. But France becomes the problem because France, under Napoleon, takes over the rest of Europe. And when he does that, the rest of Europe gets very upset bands together, eventually gets rid of Napoleon once he disaster invades Russia. Comes back with uh, one, uh, what is that, hundredth of his uh, 
original troops. He had like 400,000 going in and he came back with about 10,000 or something like that. So a bit of an oopsie. Um, it does get a bit cold in Russia. And they're really good at burning everything and running away, which the French did not understand. So um, when that happens, then you get to the era of conservatism. So you get back to that 19th century ping pong action between liberalism and conservatism that you'll see. So um, the last person that I put on here is Hegel, because I see Hegel as probably the best um, version of how history is the, the pattern of history. He believed that, first of all, history does have a purpose. And that purpose to him is the uh, idea that we are on an arc towards our consciousness of freedom, that eventually we are getting more and more and more aware of our freedom or lack of freedom, and that more and more people will argue or fight for their freedoms over time. And I think that's a fair assessment of history. Um, from the beginning, you look at European history from the Middle Ages, uh, which where we started to today, and society has changed in regards to freedom drastically in that period. Did it happen overnight? Absolutely not. And this is why it's probably important to understand why other places in the world are not going to get to the version of freedom that we expect them to be at overnight. Um, if anyone knows, uh, anyone know who Mohamed Salah is? He's a soccer player and um, plays for Liverpool. He's an Egyptian. And the other day, uh, he came out and said, um, we need to do a better job of uh, working towards more women's rights and things like that. And you might be like, well, yeah. Well, their society is very different than ours. And so going in that direction takes time. You don't just do it overnight. You have to change minds. And you know, like I probably said multiple times, it's not the generation that you convince that you're correct, but rather a new generation comes up. And yeah, so essentially the generation that doesn't agree with you, they'll die. And eventually a new generation will come up and they'll be okay with some of those things. So generally generational changes are what's going to happen. But um, there you go. So that's, that's the enlightenment. That's the biggest effect of the enlightenment um, going forward. In the period before the 30 years war, you have uh, religious conflict beginning in France, mostly. Um, you do have other issues within Germany, but France has uh, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre that happened in around 15, I think it's 1593, something like that. Um, and St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is this fight between the Bourbon and Valois families who are vying for power in France. Uh, the Valois convince Catherine de Medici that they would be able to eliminate the Bourbons. Um, Catherine kind of goes along with the plan because she thinks that if both families are weakened, it's possible that her family can continue to rule France, but that's not going to happen. Um, but what ends up happening with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which is recreated by Game of Thrones as the Red Wedding, um, is you basically have Henry Navarre coming out of it alive, and the Bourbons are still going to end up winning control of the country. And when that happens, you see version of tolerance with the Edict of Nantes. And the Edict of Nantes which Henry signs, will give tolerance to Calvinists, which he was previously, 
before converting to become a Catholic. Uh, when he takes the throne, he actually is quoted as saying, Paris is worth a mass. So he um, converts, but he also gives tolerance back to the people that he affiliates with, which makes sense. He is known as a politique, along with Elizabeth, um, in an era of maybe pre-enlightenment type uh, kings and queens that are actually ruling in the best interest of their people. Uh, so, you know, Elizabeth and Henry become known as that. You fast forward a bit, and this dissension, religious conflict that's going on, um, and really one of the reasons why the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre thing happens and why Louis XIV eventually will revoke the Edict of Nantes is that the Calvinists get into a period of iconoclastism. I think I went over this recently. That's right, Caleb. Okay, so, um, so iconoclastism is this idea that um, you don't want to put the icon ahead of what the icon is supposed to represent because that is considered like um, idol worship, basically. And so Protestants, specifically Calvinists, get very anti-idols. And they see things like the crucifix or stained glass windows or uh, saints with halos over their heads like you see throughout uh, giant cathedrals as idolatry. And so many of them are like breaking into cathedrals and smashing stained glass windows. And we call this iconoclastism where they're just destroying the icons. That's not going to endear you to many Catholics. And so this conflict is really kind of a conflict for the, the soul of Europe. And by the time you get to the 1618, when uh, the new emperor of the Holy Roman Empire comes in, um, Ferdinand decides that he is going to make the Holy Roman Empire Catholic again after the 1555 resolution that made Lutherans legal under the Peace of Augsburg. So in 1555, you have the Peace of Augsburg. In 1618, Char or uh, the new ruler of the Holy Roman Empire is going to decide that he is going to get rid of the Protestants and they will have to go back to Catholic. Now, um, the problem, of course, is when the Catholic League shows up in Prague and tells the people in Prague that they can no longer be Protestant, they throw them out the window. And that's called the defenestration of Prague, which basically starts the Thirty Years' War. Defenestration is one of the funnest words to uh, remember um, because you can still technically do it at any time. Um, you just throw someone out of a window and you've de defenestrated them. So um, they survived because they fell into a pile of manure and um, made their way back to Ferdinand and said, we got thrown out the window. And um, so they sent troops to avenge their throwing out of the windowness. And uh, at that point, you have the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. Um, Ferdinand hires a mercenary named uh, Wallenstein, who's kind of a thug with a lot of army. Let me see. Who, are they, who is he like in the Game of Thrones? He's like uh, hiring... Um, where's the, the, like the Iron Islands? Like he, he's like hiring someone from the Iron Islands to like come and... So the guy who in the current season is with Xerxes. It's like that guy's army. And so you don't know what he's going to do because he's like a pirate. Sorry about the spoiler. I'll go back. So Wallenstein, 
Everyone's like, I don't watch Game of Thrones. Uh, so <laughs> Wallenstein um, comes in, and what he does is he uh, decides he's going to um, put down the, the, the Protestant uprisings, but at the same time, many of the German kings and princes are uh, very worried about Wallenstein because he's unreliable. They're not sure what he's going to do. Many of his... Uh, Troops kind of just, because they're mercenaries, they steal uh, and take from the people of Germany. And eventually, uh, Wallenstein gets fired. Then he gets hired again because they need him in the second phase of the war. Then he gets killed or assassinated the second time because to appease the nobles. Anyway, the most important part of the Thirty Years' War is the last phase, the French phase of the war. And uh, that's the phase that kind of just devastates Europe. Um, Germany in the Thirty Years' War loses something like uh, almost half of their population base or something like that. It's like 30 to 50 percent. I know that's a widespread. Um, but it's, it's a large percentage of the population base dies uh, and goes into significant economic hardship. But from the Treaty of Westphalia, which comes in 1648, the things that you get from the Thirty Years' War is Calvinists will now enjoy what the Lutherans enjoyed under the Peace of Augsburg. So the Treaty of Westphalia gives Calvinists uh, the ability to also have freedom, or at least some uh, religious freedom. The Spanish Netherlands will no longer be Spanish. They will now be the Netherlands, and Spain will be removed. Switzerland will be independent, an independent um, state. Uh and you see more of a balance of power in Europe compared to what it was before. Um, you also see a steady decline of Spain at this time as a significant factor. And um, it's also during the early, early, early portion of Louis XIV's reign. And so he's, you're going to see like the rise of France essentially as a dominant feature in Europe. I don't think you really need to know much more than that about the Thirty Years' War. Unless you get a DBQ on the Thirty Years' War, which you won't, because they had one last year. So you won't. LEQ? Here's the thing about the LEQ is it's going to be um, generally the same historical thinking skill asked in uh, two or three different time periods. So I'll show you examples of that at the end, uh, where, where I'll, I'll show you what that might look like. Um, okay, so you have uh, Toussaint Louverture. Uh, anyone know who he is? Perfect, that's why I'm going over him. So Toussaint, we could call him Toussaint because it, like, it's easier to say in the other. Um, he, is a, uh, he was a slave in um, Cuba, or Hispaniola, and he revolts against the French and then eventually fights another freed or an elite uh, native or not native, I guess slave as well, because he was brought from Africa, so technically not native of... Anyway, um, they fight each other in like a civil war, but then Napoleon gains power. And when Napoleon gains power, he's kind of interested in making some money. And so they reinstate slavery after the revolutionary government had gotten rid of slavery. And so in an effort to put down this revolt against the French, who are trying to reinstate slavery... Napoleon does what he always does when he doesn't like someone and kidnaps him. Brings He did the same with the Pope. Brings him back to France. It's funny because it's true. Um, and when he brings him back to, the, uh, to, to France, it kind of 
squelches the rebellion um, to a point. Now, obviously, after Napoleon, they eventually will get independence uh, and, and not be a slave state anymore. Um, but the other thing Napoleon does to gain wealth is sells Louisiana because he needs capital. So Napoleon's uh, goals at this time really involve this slave revolt that I think the reason that he's important is that he's a byproduct of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment essentially is saying people should be free. And so slavery gets removed because of the French Revolution. So this guy is important now because he's going to lead a slave revolt and win. But then Napoleon, who's supposed to be an enlightened despot, decides that slavery is okay, and he puts it back in. And that makes sense. So as far as like a random figure that you might see, especially since one of the um, themes in European history is supposed to be Europe and the rest of the world, um, something like that. So it's possible you could see that. Um, anyone remember Ricardo Bentham, Malthus, and the Luddites? Malthus? Okay. Everyone remembers Malthus because he's about population control. Um, and so I'll tell you these other guys and their major contribution. Um, David Ricardo is known as coming up with the iron law of wages. Um, he, along with Malthus, are the reason that economics became known as the depressing science. So for a long time, everyone was like, I hate economics. It's so depressing. Because what Ricardo believed is um, wages would never, ever go higher than subsistence level for the average worker. Subsistence means the amount you need to survive. And so what he believed with the iron law of wages is that no matter what, it is not in the interest of a factory owner to give you more wages than you need to survive. Because there's always an excess of population, which Malthus is also talking about, that is willing to take your job if you want to raise. And so rather than giving you more access to wealth, I can always just pay you enough so that you're not going to revolt. And so you get this iron law of wages. So the other thing that factors in is inflation. So let's just say you raise the wages for everybody. Now you've just created inflation or natural inflation. And so what you have with Ricardo is this idea that um, it, that's why it's called the iron law of wages, because it, it, to him it never changes, that essentially everybody is under this strict kind of iron law of wages. Unless, of course, you're the, the bourgeois class that owns stuff. That's different. Um, Bentham is known for utilitarianism. So utilitarianism is the concept that you should always be under the government that is uh, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. It's kind of a cheater way of saying any government will work as long as most people are okay with it. Um, he didn't believe that you had to go to any really strict form of anything uh, as long as it was effective. And so, you know, some people think that Bentham is like a pre-socialist kind of ideology which, you know, I could see some of that, but um, he, he basically thought that any government could be successful as long as uh, you implemented certain things to make the most amount of people in your society uh, their lives better. Malthus is known uh, for population control, basically, that, that we had a bit of a population problem. Um, 
He also came up with the idea that poor people should not have children um, because they couldn't afford them. He could, they couldn't feed them. Um, and that was obviously not popular. Um, Malthus is probably, he's correct and incorrect in certain ways because one thing he doesn't factor in is that there are going to be certain times where Europeans actually start having less children um, for a variety of reasons that actually do help with population control. And the always constant threat of plague um, also does thin the rank ranks a couple of times. So, um, and war. So obviously the Thirty Years' War helped in reducing population issues, but I, you shouldn't be like hoping for population reductions based on natural disasters and wars, I hope. Um, people should be making those decisions probably in a more educated fashion, but... Um, they will start doing that a little bit more in the 20th century. Uh, of course, by the time you get to the 20th century, um, there's a lot of people. So you're hoping more people are making those positive decisions anyway. Uh, do you guys remember the Factory Act of 1833 and the Mines Act of 1842? Cool, that's why I'm going over it. So the Factory Act, uh, it, what? Oh, the Luddites. Um, I love the Luddites, mostly because they just, they're a lot like the Romantics in that they believed that industry and specifically factories were destroying culture. So they are the anti-factory, anti-industry, anti-technology peoples of their day. Hippies, you might say. Um, what they did is they, they started a number of Luddite revolts where they would actually break into factories and like smash uh, machinery and whatnot, um, because many of them were blacksmiths and woodmakers and uh, you know your traditional carpenters, and their jobs are being taken away by factories, and so they're incredibly upset about the changing conditions of work um, to the point where they're going to revolt throughout a number of different places, specifically in England, um, against the factory system. The reason that in a more traditional sense, like if you're writing an essay about 20th century technology or something like that, they, we do have a term called the Neo-Luddites, N-E-O-L-U-D-D-I-T-E-S, uh, which is this, and I used to have you guys read a, uh, an article on the Neo-Luddites. Um, I may at some point. Uh, but it's basically the, the concept that these people exist today. Um, there, there are always people that are going to resist technology. There's always people that are willing to point out the problems that technology give us, not just the successes of it. And, um, you know, it, this can be a variety of things. Um, what the person who wrote the article that I usually use um, talks about how maybe the green movement is a good example of maybe a neo-Luddite movement that, you know, says, hey, yeah, we have all these amazing technologies that, that have shaped our way of life, but at what cost? Like, what, what are we losing in, in that um, in that situation. So as far as the Factory Act and the Mines Act, um, the Factory Act starts in 1833 in England as a way to reduce the hours limits on children working and adults. So I think it went to like eight and 12. So I think children were allowed to work eight hour days. Adults were allowed to work 12 hour days. 
the Mines Act made it illegal to have women in the mine and children, uh, girls in the mine. And um, boys had to be 10. So, you know, really strict labor laws. You had to be 10 and you couldn't be female. A lot of them were dying, not that the boys weren't, um, but they saw it. It's also in an era of um, people are trying to um, go back to a more traditional view of uh, gender relationships in, in your England specifically, and um, they saw the factory system as kind of deteriorating that as well as destroying the nu- nuclear family. And so some of these are actually ways in which they're trying to like keep women as women rather in the traditional sense um, rather or the English traditional sense rather than just allow them to have the same experience as their boys basically um, you could argue that it's a way of keeping women in the household but I think that that's a stretch because they were still working in factories they were still working in textile industries mostly so um, I, I think it's a stretch to go that far uh, the famine, it happened multiple times to the Irish again and again and again. Um, 1845, 46, 48, 51, all of their harvests died. Potato blight, right? And the English will argue that they were under a strict laissez-faire system of economics and decided not to help the Irish by selling them food. Or giving them food. Um, but instead that they should find a way out of it on their own. Obviously, the Irish still are a little upset. As is fair. Because almost half their population either died or moved. So, that was bad. Um, they were in a period of mass emigration. Um, famine starvation, and it basically sets up a movement towards Irish nationalism that is going to want to reject British rule eventually. Which, of course, they do get that eventually um, with the Republic of Ireland. They do still have Northern Ireland, which is uh, still somewhat controlled by Britain. Um, Any questions on that? The Dreyfus Affair, I think I talked about it, but I'll talk about it briefly again. Um, Dreyfus was a a French um, member of the French military that was accused of of espionage or treason, spying kind of thing. Now, it turned out that he didn't do anything. And this was really just an anti-Semitic situation. Where and, and what this reveals is that in a place like France that sees itself as a one of the most liberal uh, countries probably in Europe at this time, they're still very anti-Semitic. Uh, and it, it's kind of that underlying, because it happens at the end of the 1800s going into the 20th century. And it's that underlying anti-Semitism that is going to come to a head by the time you get to Hitler's Germany in the 30s. Um, and, and eventually go towards the Holocaust. So the Dreyfus Affair is, it, it, it reveals the hypocrisy of the French government 
It, it reveals the underlying racism that is still very present in Europe against specifically the Jews. Um, and, and around the same time, what is happening, you know, 10 to 15 years later, is that the British are starting to posture the idea of moving Israel back to a homeland. Um, and uh, the Zionist movement becomes very strong around this period. Uh, that term Zionism is a term you might want to write down. Uh, it's basically the idea that the Jews should have a homeland uh, in what is now Israel. Um, but if you, one of the documents that support like the British claim um, is the, now I'm blanking, um, Balfour Declaration, um, which is a memo that essentially says that, hey, there's a nice plot of land over here that the Jews should live in. And yes, there may have been some people there, but both groups did have historical claim to the land. That is accurate. Um, so there becomes uh, a foundation for that idea. So there you go. There's the random stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it's the, the Great Famine and what ended up happening with the Great Famine is it creates an underlying contention conflict between the Irish and the British because the Irish feel neglected by the British Empire and they feel robbed in essence they were still collecting really high taxes they were still like they, they continued business as usual and the Irish felt incredibly harmed by this um, I mean, the Irish version of this history is much darker. Uh, I can pull up some of it for you because I have a, actually I, I should because my my one of my old students is Irish and she did this whole series on um, Irish history and she's a history major, which makes me happy. Irish language. So. Um, she says, another reason for the loss of the Irish language was the famine. However, the Irish famine wasn't just a potato famine, but rather a man-made famine and genocide perpetrated by the British. The British purposely pursued a policy of mass starvation in order to rid the island of the gale. Uh, although there was a potato blight from 1845 to 52, there was other food to eat, and British landowners living in Ireland had food to eat. The potato was just one of the only foods that the Irish had left. One source claims that in the worst year of the famine, 4,000 ships of food were exported from Ireland to England. The British forced starvation or starving Irish men, women, and children to build roads that led nowhere in exchange for food. These roads are known as the famine roads, and you can still see them in Ireland today. Approximately 1 million people died and another million emigrated. This was a quarter of the island's population. So um, the Irish version of the history is a little darker than the... British version of the history so most people just remember it as a famine itself but uh, that's not how the Irish remember it it's definitely different so yeah the Baltics um, so uh, the issues in the Baltics really have to do with the fact that multiple um, multiple groups of people are living in a relatively small region with multiple languages, multiple cultures, um, and most of the time they're under the Holy Roman Empire or the Austrian Empire for a, a, a significant amount of uh, period. Now, by the time you get to World War I, they are in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which is a dual monarchy. 
where basically you have the Austrian ruler is actually ruler of both Austria and Hungary, um, but he's still in control of both. So, so the reason they did this is because Hungary was like, we want our own government. So they create their own government, and then they accept the fact that we don't really want to break away from you, but we kind of want to break away from you. So you'll be our king kind of thing. So the Baltics become a uh, hotbed of frustration because of nationalism, because when more and more groups of people are starting to identify themselves through language, through music, through culture, um, and that expression becomes very commonplace in Europe, especially since like the, the German unification, the Italian unification of the late 1800s and the 1860s and 70s, you get to the point where many smaller groups want what eventually Woodrow Wilson will call self-determination, meaning they get to choose themselves what government they would like to live under. Um, and really what it is, is it's a remnant of empires that is slowly dying. And as those empires are slowly dying, more of those unique cultures are starting to express the need to self-determination. The, the question is, what happened to Italian humanism? It, it goes through a period of um, decline once you get to the Reformation, because when the Reformation happens, um, people are starting to challenge the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church tries to uh, accumulate more and more followers, and so many of the Italian humanists start losing relevance going forward because they're, they're now more concerned with you know the Jesuit order. Um, now, a lot of the ideologies that they came up with, you know, that man had uh, unique abilities, that they had godlike qualities, um, that they had the ability to shape their the world around them. Um, all of those things will still be be important. But remember that the Italian humanist is first of all not a very large per portion of the population. So you're talking about a small amount of the population. Um, once the printing press comes in and their ideas start to spread, uh, what you actually find is that it probably helps the Reformation more than it helps anything else. Because they will not convince the religious portion of Europe that religion should go away, but rather they convince people that they should think for themselves rather than be told how the world around them is dict or, you know, dictated how the world should work. Um, and so it, it really spawns, I think, the other eras of scientific revolution, enlightenment, et cetera, et cetera, over time. Uh, you know, obviously the Index Forbidden Books can reduce some of the impact of that, but not completely, because if you are someone with the means, you're going to find a way or access to those books, even if they are on the Index of Forbidden Books. So uh, that that's, I think, the best way to answer it, is that it kind of morphs into other uh, movements going forward. So the, the biggest difference between uh, exploration and colonialism and then imperialism is the intent of the three movements. So exploration is meant really as it sounds to explore and hopefully gain resources from other places, uh, specifically in an era that had dealt with significant famine and the Little Ice Age in its most immediate preceding era. They will try to find a, a way to preserve food over time. Uh, now that backfired at times because they were just throwing peppers and salts and things on meat that probably no one should touch. 
um, and covering the fact that it's bad. Uh, but over time, they start realizing how they can preserve food for a longer period of time and not die from it. Um, but once you get past that exploration stage, they start thinking, hey, maybe we can get some gold and silver and spice and those, those major products that we can benefit from economically, at least in an era of mercantilism where you're just trying to kind of accumulate bullion. Um, in the colonial era, it transfers to trying to make it a sustainable sustainable resources of cash crops. So you create colonies and systems of colonies like the Encomienda system in in South America that is built around the idea that it's going to be sustainable over time and that you're going to specifically ask those areas to make certain crops that you can't grow as well in Europe. Or maybe you could, but since you have a lot of land in Latin America, you could do it there and then bring it back, right? So the, the intent of colonialism is really to continue or make something sustainable over time as a secondary resource for your country, right? Um, in the imperial era, it is a mixture of in heavy industrialization, um, the increase of militaries, and competition that capitalism has bred between countries to kind of accumulate or uh, come to a head with what Lenin essentially called uh, the last stage of capitalism. He believed that you couldn't take advantage of your own people anymore. You had to go take advantage of someone else because taking advantage of someone somewhere else was easier because your people weren't seeing it on a daily basis. And so if you do it somewhere else and you take their resources and you pull from there, exploit that group, then you won't have to exploit your own people as much and that's how Lenin saw it. Now, how the rest of Europe saw it, the, the non-communist versions of Europe, is that they had the opportunity to uh, deal with the white man's burden. Like, they, they got an opportunity to export civilization. Now, we can argue that uh, for sure, but as far as they are concerned at the time, and to be fair, um, they did find ways to raise the standard of living in many places throughout the world. Uh, and again, it comes back to the concept of at what cost, right? So is there negative externalities that outweigh the positive effects of imperialism? So, uh, and those are questions that quite honestly are just good critical thinking questions that you hopefully can think through on your own uh, and come to your own conclusions on those things. Because uh, my own conclusion doesn't matter at the end of the day for this, uh, your ability to Tell me if you think that that was a positive and negative, net positive or net negative over the long term is more important, um, I guess is the best way to put it. The guild system in Europe starts in the Renaissance. Actually, it starts before that. Guilds were in Europe since the Greeks. Um, the Greeks had guild systems because back then you didn't generally know who artists were. You would just have a guild say, hey, we need a bunch of people to build this. And they would just send people to build it because they were all trained to do that. So in the Renaissance, you see artist guilds specifically. Uh, Florence was known for this. Uh, the, the current academia, which holds the David, was a guild. It was an artist guild where they would uh, build giant paper mache statues that they would teach people how to make them. They would give you, you know, show you how to do technique. You would go through a process of becoming a master and over time, you would present a masterpiece 
for approval by your overlings that would decide if you were a master or not. Otherwise, you would continue to be um, an apprentice and you would work underneath the masters and do the stuff no one wants to do. So you're doing, you know, the field or just doing a ton of water or a ton of clouds and that's it. And then the master's doing the detail, right? So guild systems uh, probably show up most commonly in the Renaissance period. And then they start showing up again and again based on changing market conditions. So by the time you get to the Industrial Revolution, um, or even before that, if you go to like Colbert's uh, Mercantilism in France, he has uh, glassblower guilds, he's got um, carpenter guilds. He, he utilizes the guild systems in order to benefit France um, and accumulate more and more professionals that are able to be masters, like master class uh, artisans and professionals. And so the guild system is incredibly important until you get to industrialization. And it actually will start to reduce the importance of guilds because what they find very quickly with the factory system is that you can replace people with machines and have people look and watch the machines and push the buttons. And that's quicker, more efficient, and probably more cost effective. It's part of the reason why you get the Luddites, because the Luddites are sitting there going, no, we've been doing this for a thousand years. Why are you giving my job to a machine? But the truth was the machine's faster and more efficient and more cost effective. So like Karl Marx said, it created a species essence problem, right? Where we essentially give up our creativity in order to be more efficient. Um, and that, that becomes kind of the transition away from guilds. Um, today, we still see guilds, but they're in uh, very specific types of unions, like uh, electricians' unions and carpenters' unions and things like that are kind of your modern-day version of a guild. So there you go. So with uh, enlightened despotism, first of all, one of the people that specifically comes up with this ideology is Voltaire. And when Voltaire is writing about enlightened despotism, what he's saying is uh, someone like Peter the Great is a great example of enlightened despotism because he did all these things for his country in an enlightened fashion, trying to bring them into a modern era. Uh, he, he allowed people to move up with the table of ranks. And I know that he's not specifically part of the enlightened despot time period. But what Voltaire is alluding to is the idea that certain rulers put it to where their their interests take a second or a back seat to their people's interests. And so the three enlightened despots that we generally recognize are uh, Catherine the Great, um, Frederick the Great, and uh, Joseph II. Um, of the three, the one that we credit as actually doing the most for his people is Joseph, which is ironic because Austria tends to be the one that we're thinking, don't they just die in the 20th century? And the answer is yes. Yes, they do. Um, now, Frederick is the one that I had you guys read his uh, letter back and forth between his dad and him. Um, Frederick goes from kind of a, a weak version of a kid that his dad thinks he is to one of the greatest rulers in Prussian history. Um, he consolidates quite a bit of Prussia. He wins a number of different wars. And uh, Frederick, at least in his intent, wanted to make the lives of his middle and lower classes, mostly lower class, 
better. He doesn't do much, though. Like, as far as legislation goes, he doesn't really do anything. Catherine is the best and worst. Like, she starts as wanting to do a lot for the peasants. So she, like, starts giving them some freedoms, and then they revolt and want more freedom. And then she's like, no, uh uh-uh. So she goes in and, like, makes it even more repressive at the end. So, like, she starts on a path towards, I'm going to free the peasants or make their lives better. They revolt and want more. She goes the other way. So, yeah. No, very different. So Catherine de' Medici is um, 200 years earlier. Um, and she's, she's the one with three ineffective children. Um, she's Xerxes, if you're uh, keeping track. The first significant pope after uh, the Reformation, or during the Reformation probably, is Pope Paul III. So Pope Paul III is going to lead the Council of Trent. He's going to commission the Ignatius Order. Uh, he, he also is the one who commissions the, the altarpiece in the Sistine Chapel. And that's the person that Michelangelo puts as Peter in uh, The Last Judgment. The reason he's important, of course, is because from a, a transformational period where the Catholic Church is really struggling to find its identity because it's it just had a couple of Medici popes or a Medici pope that bankrupt the treasury and um, didn't really have a positive impact because you have the Reformation happen. Uh, pope Paul III becomes important. Uh, going forward, I, I would say many of the popes after him are less important until you get to Poland. Um, because in Poland, Pope John Paul II, not Paul II, or third, Pope John Paul II, that's why I would have messed this up, is um, going to help with the solidarity movement in Poland. And he's important because Poland found a way to retain some of their cultural identity through the Soviet Union, which is not easy because Stalin's trying to get rid of cultural identity and make you Soviet, just ask the Ukrainians. So when the Polish have their Polish pope, elected to become the Pope, and he comes back to Poland, he's identifying with the Polish people, and he's basically calling on them saying, you guys should enjoy certain natural rights. And so he's kind of affirming what they already were fighting with and fighting for, and that's known as the Solidarity Movement, where you have someone almost saying, hey, I'll stand with you in this fight against the Soviet Union and communism. Um, It is very adorable. And then Pope Francis today, I would consider also pretty important because he is changing the narrative in regards to how the Catholic Church is getting involved with politics. I think Pope John John Paul II also does that with this solidarity movement. But the fact that Pope Francis is willing to talk about climate change, he's willing to talk about uh, different social issues that have been really faux pas before that, um, I, I think also identifies what is a trend in 20th century Europe, and that is that the church is becoming more involved in politics in certain voting blocks. Um, so, you know, you, you see that in our country with the Christian right. Uh, you see that in Europe with the Christian Democrats, which actually existed throughout Europe. You had Christian Democrats in Germany. You had them in France. You had a version of them in, Brit- in Britain, uh, where you have groups that are trying to come up with their Judeo-Christian tradition and also apply that to the political structures of the day, and they become incredibly important voting blocks. So um, 
I, I guess that's the best way to go over the post. As far as the DBQ is concerned, um, it has to be after 1600. I have not seen them do a DBQ on the Age of Anxiety in a long time, which means that that is definitely fair game. The last few years of test has been the 30 Years War. Um, they did one on Louis. They did one on Bismarck. Those were the ones that were the most common in a lot, or those were the last three years. Um, I think that it's very probable to see a transnational union, meaning like a European Union DBQ or a uh, Age of Anxiety DBQ, which I think both of those you guys would do well on. Um, I would love for them to do an imperialism DBQ. That one would be fine. Uh, I think that you could also do a DBQ around the 1848 revolutions. And as long as you understand the cause and effect of the 1848 revolutions, the details of the 1848 revolutions are irrelevant. Um, you knowing what happened in Paris versus Vienna versus some, like there's like seven of them. So you, they're not gonna ask you about the specific revolts. They're gonna ask you cause and effect. So um, the other time period that I could also see them going for a DBQ would be maybe the, um, the, the Enlightenment into French Revolution era. They haven't done that in a while. So that, now, the DBQ is supposed to be a significant issue. So it's not, it used to not be this. When I first started teaching Euro, it was like, there was a DBQ on the Vichy regime in France, which we teach for 10 minutes when you teach the, the World War II. Because it's like, oh, they had a Vichy regime where uh, the Nazis put a general, French general in charge of France, and he's a puppet government of France. Like, that's how most European teachers talk about the Vichy regime. And then they're like, let's make a DDQ about it, because no one will know anything. Great, thanks. Um, they've had one DBQ in the past on Alsace-Lorraine, which was about Alsatian nationalism. And the, the key was that you had to understand it was the era of nationalism, and that's what you had to get. So the, the, what they used to do is like pick some random topic, and then you had to figure out what was going on in that period. The way it's written now, they are supposed to pick a big event. So the last three have been Louis XIV, Bismarck, the Thirty Years' War. Those are big events. The Vichy regime, no. Um, they had one DBQ, my favorite DBQ of all time, that was on the Olympics. And you're like, Cheryl, you haven't even told us the Olympics happened. Uh, the, yeah, the, and what it was, was it was a DBQ about nationalism and militarism. But they wanted you to find out that through looking at these Olympics documents. Um, so that's the way they used to do it. They've changed the test to, in my opinion, make it easier for people to access, but we'll see. Um, as far as... Uh, I, I think it's better because you guys feel better about it when you leave. Like last year when the people left the test, they were like, at least I didn't, like many of them thought the 30 years war was hard. I find the 30 years war to be hard for the relevant topics. It is. It's just, it's confusing. It's in a weird period. It's got four phases. It's like, what is going on in the 30 years? War? I get that. Um, so that was fair. But the rest of the test, pretty much everyone that did good study for last year saw the rest of the test is pretty easy. Like, the short answer was easy. The LEQ was pretty easy. Uh, yeah, more. 
Um, I rarely see that happen. Um, I, I've seen traditionally with the um, people that put in the work to study uh, should be able to get a three if they've put in the work. Uh, and I've had people that did not put in the work and got threes um, because they were able to just remember what I did in class and didn't lecture and things like that. Uh, and then they were a decent test taker. Um, you will get a four or a five if you have consistently throughout the year, for the most part, held up your end on the study side. Like as long as you've not just decided that, hey, I'm going to rely solely on Searle to get me through this, um, you're going to get a four or five, unless you just get a question that like is a disaster question for you. So, uh, or it, unless you make a brutal mistake. My, I had a, uh, probably the, I, I had someone who was the, I think I told one of my classes, I had, a, I had someone who was a, uh, the valedictorian of USC and she got a four because she botched the DBQ. Um, and she came to me right after the exam was over crying and said, uh, I didn't answer the question. So, um, and, and what it was is it was a Elizabeth DBQ and the DBQ asked about gender and she didn't even mention gender in her thesis. And so she should have gotten a five, but she got a four because she essentially misread the question. So unless you don't make a, a drastic mistake, um, that's, that's kind of what, it, or you just don't, don't answer a question that I've seen that too, where someone, you know, shockingly to me got like a two and I was like, why did this, this person shouldn't have got a two. And I asked them later and they said, I, I literally skipped the question. It's like, oh, well, that's hurtful. Yes. Yes. I had the most fives I've ever had last year. So, um, I had 10 fives, which was, a, uh, based on the amount of people that took the tests, uh, that's significantly higher than the national average doesn't matter. Uh, the test is based on a curve, so it doesn't matter if the test is easy or hard. Yeah? The many, many years. At this point in time, my best advice is to, to start every time that you study something, doing it in a cause and effect manner. So when you study a period, you have to know what came before and what is going to come after because that's how I would say 80 to 90% of the multiple choice is done is through cause and effect. So like this thing that you're reading might have nothing to do with the questions they're going to ask until they ask the question on the cause and effect side. And you're like, Oh, well, yeah, now I can make a connection. So, um, they're actually testing. They're trying to test your historical thinking skills. Your, abil your ability to recognize those things. So um, I would try to phrase your uh, review in that manner rather than something else. Um, as far as the, the long essay question, as you can tell up here, there's going to be one option from the first period. So that first period is uh, 1450 to 1648. Option two will be from 1648 to 1914. And option three will be from 1812 uh, to... Uh, 2001. So you'll have these questions that are staggered. I'll show you an example of this. Yeah, you have a question, Annika? Um, yeah, what tips do you have for really bad um, When it comes to multiple choice, 
uh, bring a highlighter and always make sure that you are answering exactly what they're asking. And if you feel like you are intimidated by the question, don't think of the question in terms of the history. Think if you can figure it out without the history because you can sometimes um, just based on clues in the actual prompt. So if you ever get scared of the question based on the content, don't be. Think, how can I think about this without the content? Um, and try to think about it the other way. And one way to do that, especially if you have time, is at the end, if you have flagged questions, like if you're thinking there's a couple that I can't answer right now, I would recommend answering them, flagging them, and then going back to see if you have the right answer because you don't want to flag it and then not answer it. It's better that you actually have an answer on the page. It's 25% better that you actually have an answer on the page than not, right? It's actually thousands of times better because no answer is always wrong. Um, so you need to have something there. Go back and do the Jeopardy version of questioning. So read the answer first and then figure out if you're actually answering the prompts. And so like do it backwards. So whatever answer you decided, read it and then see if you actually answer the prompt. That makes sense? Um, it's a way of making or forcing you to think of the question in a different way. So it can be helpful. Yeah. So is this all written? Yes. Multiple choice, you're, you're uh, bubbling. Um, short answer, you are writing. And my best advice is that your short answer probably should be a page. Um, most, here's, a, you, you have three short answers in 40 minutes. So you can do a short answer at a pace of 13 minutes per question. Most of you write short answers in five minutes. So it's not that you're wrong. It's just that sometimes what happens, and I've found more recently, is that many of you are answering the question, but not all of the question. So you might identify something, but not really explain it. Um, so again, highlight the chore that they're asking you to complete and then make sure that you did that. You'll have time for the short answer. And the short answer, based on the uh, test here, is worth 20% of the exam. So three questions are worth 20% of the exam. How much is the multiple The multiple choice is worth 40%. And there's 55 questions. Um, DBQ is worth 25 LEQ is the least, 15. So do not, when you because they give it to you in sections. Do not, when you get the long essay and DBQ packet, which is what you get together, don't be like, look through it, get to the LEQ, and oh, I could kill this LEQ. I'm going to start there. Fine, if you can write it in 30 minutes. So be checking all the time if you do that, that you're done in 30 minutes. If you're not done in 30 minutes, it is better use of your time to start the DBQ without finishing your LEQ than to go and just say, I need to finish this essay. This is my, because it's not the gravy train. <laughs> like if you have that one essay that you think, my God, this is going to make my score and you neglect the thing that's worth 25% of the test, you're hosed. You can't do that. Um, so you need to kind of prioritize based on the percentages. And the percentages show that uh, the DBQ and short answer are the most important components of the test. Uh, so, um, 
Any other questions on the exam? Yeah. You write one LEQ and one DBQ. You can do it either. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you speed up multiple choice? Um, you're, the, the thing that is nice about the multiple choice that I found is that certain components of it will be significantly easier than other sections, um, especially when they give you sections that have maybe four questions on one prompt. The thing that slows you down is when there's multiple two question prompts where it's like here's two questions now read another thing now read another thing that's what slows you down um if you have a four or five question prompt you'll go faster um so again i think that the key with multiple choice is that you if you feel like i'm sitting on an answer for too long make an answer flag the question and then go back to it at the end because it's not worth your time to not answer all the multiple choice um, so you, you have to kind of just prioritize efficiency over uh, making sure that you spend all the time to make sure you get the best answer you think. Efficiency is better. Yeah. Um, when the tests start, do we get the packet with everything included? No. They give it to you in sections. So you get the multiple choice, 55 minutes, you turn that in. You get a mini break. You get the short answer, 40 minutes, you get a mini break. You get the writing section, you get... Two hours. You get uh, 40 minutes for the LEQ and 60 minutes for the DB. So you get an hour and 40 minutes for the last section. Um, yeah. If you're listening to this before the exam, good luck on the exam. And if you're someone who's listened to this after taking my class a couple of years ago and you, for some reason, wanted to go back and listen to an AP Euro review, uh, thanks for stopping in. For everyone else, uh, and you actually spent two hours and 53 minutes listening to a podcast about AP European history. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, it's basically like reading a book on tape or something like that. I'll see you guys. This has been One More Thing.